0: This episode covers events in the wars in Afghanistan, and Iraq, in graphic detail and with explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. As the United States began settling in for a prolonged reconstruction and occupation of Afghanistan, some officials in the Bush administration had already begun shifting their attention to Iraq. Many of them, including Vice President Dick Cheney, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and Secretary of State Colin Powell, had served during the first Bush Presidency and had been directly involved in Operation Desert Storm. Nothing had changed in Iraq. The country had been under sanction since the end of the Gulf War. However, the threat of its biological and chemical weapons programs were being reevaluated through the traumatic prism of 9-11. I'm David DeSola. This is the 10th episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. The idea of the Bush administration taking military action against Saddam Hussein can be traced to the immediate aftermath of 9-11. September 12, 2001. In his memoir Against All Enemies, White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark wrote that he and other officials were pulled into a conference room for a private meeting with President Bush. In Clark's telling, the president told him, quote, I know you have a lot to do and all, but I want you, as soon as you can, to go back over everything. Everything. See if Saddam did this. See if he's linked in any way." Clark responded, quote, but Mr. President Al-Qaeda did this. He would later add, quote, we have looked several times for state sponsorship of Al-Qaeda and not found any real linkages to Iraq. Iran plays a little, so does Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, Yemen. In his 2004 book, Plan of Attack, journalist Bob Woodward wrote Since 9 11, Rumsfeld had been saying categorically that defense was not enough, that the U.S. needed an offense. The battle had to be taken to the terrorists. They had to be attacked, taken out preemptively. Any discussion of employing the military under some theory and not an immediate threat to U.S. national security made Powell exceedingly nervous. Secretary of State Colin Powell rolled his eyes when Rumsfeld raised the subject of Iraq as an opportunity during a meeting in the immediate days after 9-11. Support for attacking Iraq wasn't there, yet. Bob Woodward reported a vote among Bush advisors on the issue of hitting Iraq. The vote was four to nothing against, with Rumsfeld as the only abstaining vote. Rumsfeld's deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, was much more hawkish on the matter. According to Bob Woodward, He thought a war in Afghanistan would be, quote, dicey and uncertain. In contrast, he viewed Iraq as an oppressive, brittle regime which might break easily with an internal opposition wanting to take over. Without any real evidence, he estimated there was a 10-50% to chance that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. September 14, 2001. Bruce Rydell, a CIA officer working at the National Security Council at the time, was part of the team of White House officials listening in on President Bush's phone call with British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Twenty years later, Rydell would recall the president said he was planning to hit Iraq soon. He described Blair as, quote, audibly taken aback, and noted that he pressed President Bush for evidence tying Iraq to 9-11. September 16, 2001 President Bush tells National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, quote, We won't do Iraq now, we're putting Iraq off, but eventually we'll have to return to that question. Donald Rumsfeld was given instructions to keep working on Iraq war plans at the Pentagon, but it was not a top priority at the moment. November 21st, 2001. In his book Plan of Attack, journalist Bob Woodward writes that President Bush asked Donald Rumsfeld about war plans for Iraq. Keep in mind, this was 72 days after 9-11. The president asked Rumsfeld to get General Tommy Franks to look at, quote, what it would take to protect America by removing Saddam Hussein if we have to. Remember, Tommy Franks is the general in charge of U.S. Central Command, who is already running the post-9-11 war effort in Afghanistan. Now he's being asked by the top two leaders in the U.S. military chain of command to make plans to invade another country. The president also asked Rumsfeld to keep it a secret. Not a problem, Rumsfeld says, because he is already doing a worldwide review of U.S. war plans in every global hotspot. The Middle East, the Horn of Africa, South Central Asia, the Pacific, Europe. The review of the existing Iraq plans will be one in a series of reviews, hiding in plain sight. In his memoir, former FBI agent Ali Soufan noted that there was, quote, "...a lot of pressure on the FBI from the White House," To produce a link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, the 9-11 team's assessment, again and again, was that there was no link. The White House didn't like that answer, and told the Bureau to look into it more and, quote, come up with one. The FBI pushed back on the pressure. Again, according to Soufan's memoir, the number two agent on the FBI's 9-11 team told Director Robert Mueller, quote, Sir, in the FBI we present facts. We don't manufacture reasons for White House wars. The director agreed, and the message went back that the assessment wouldn't be changed. Still, the White House kept looking for the missing link connecting Saddam Hussein to Al-Qaeda or 9-11. The Bush administration began making its public case for preemptive war against Iraq in August of 2002, with the formation of the White House Iraq Group by Chief of Staff Andrew Card, colloquially known by the acronym WIG. Among its participants were White House political advisor Carl Rove, communications experts Karen Hughes, Mary Madeline, and James Wilkerson, and policy advisors Condoleezza Rice, Stephen Hadley, and Lewis Scooter Libby. According to journalist Robert Draper, WIG's job was, quote, "...to orchestrate a communication strategy for selling the threat of Saddam to a skeptical public and Congress." Card was later quoted by the New York Times on September 6, 2002, saying, From a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products in August. September 8, 2002. The New York Times introduces the image of the mushroom cloud into the public discourse, quoting anonymous officials with alarmist views about Iraqi aluminum tubes as centrifuge components. The story, citing the anonymous officials, said, quote, The first sign of a smoking gun, they argue, may be a mushroom cloud. That same day, Condoleezza Rice appeared on CNN saying Saddam Hussein was, quote, actively pursuing a nuclear weapon and again invoked the mushroom cloud imagery, quote, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Invoking the dangers of a nuclear Iraq one year after 9-11 with the unmistakable image of a mushroom cloud would touch a nerve especially with a generation of Americans who grew up during the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The administration also began publicly linking Saddam Hussein to Al Qaeda, even though those ties were murky at best. Remember, Osama bin Laden was a fanatically religious terrorist. Saddam Hussein was a secular, bloodthirsty tyrant and a member of a Sunni minority oppressing a Shia-majority population. Saddam and Osama may have had a common religion. Both men were Sunni Muslims and a common enemy, the United States. But that did not make Saddam a state sponsor of Al-Qaeda. But the Bush administration's marketing campaign worked. Its messaging was so effective that, according to a September 2003 poll by the Washington Post, 69% of Americans thought Saddam Hussein was personally involved in 9-11. In the same poll, 82% of Americans thought that Saddam Hussein had provided assistance to Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Keep in mind, this poll was commissioned a little more than a year after the formation of the White House Iraq Group and close to the two-year anniversary of 9-11. But despite turning the tide of popular opinion domestically, the Bush administration was not as successful in making their case internationally.
1: February 5th, 2003. The material I will present to you comes from a variety of sources. Some are U.S. sources and some are those of other countries. Some of the sources are technical, such as intercepted telephone conversations and photos taken by satellites. Other sources are people who have risked their lives to let the world know what Saddam Hussein is really up to. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts and Iraqis' behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more Weapons of mass destruction.
0: U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell makes the administration's case to the United Nations that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. The United States wanted enforcement of existing U.N. resolutions against Iraq and a new resolution that would give them credibility and cover to go back into Iraq. The administration had already asked Congress for a joint resolution months earlier, ...that would give them authority to use military force against Iraq. It was not a declaration of war, but tantamount to one. The bill that was ultimately voted on and passed was House Joint Resolution 114... ...which was originally sponsored by the then Republican Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert. The joint resolution passed the House and Senate over two days in October of 2002... For the most part, Republicans were united behind the president. Democrats were much more divided. It's worth noting four Democrats who were on Al Gore's short list for vice president just two years earlier, who each had presidential ambitions of their own for 2004. Senator John Kerry, a long-standing member of the Foreign Relations Committee, voted in favor of the resolution even though he had opposed a similar resolution before the first Gulf War back in 1991. Kerry first became a national figure in 1971 as a Vietnam veteran who spoke out against the war. While testifying before the Foreign Relations Committee as a young veteran, he asked this
2: famous question. How do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake?
0: Joe Lieberman, the hawkish centrist senator who had been Al Gore's running mate two years ago, was unapologetically in support of this war. He was the author of Senate Joint Resolution 46, a slightly different version of House Joint Resolution 114, which ultimately never got a vote. John Edwards, the young freshman senator from North Carolina who not only voted for the resolution, he co-sponsored Joe Lieberman's Iraq Joint Resolution 46. Dick Gephardt, who had served as the Democratic leader of the House of Representatives for years, also voted in favor of the Iraq Resolution. It's also worth noting a fifth Democrat who voted in favor of the resolution, Hillary Clinton, the former first lady, who was now the freshman senator from New York. In time, most of them would come to regret their votes in favor of the Iraq Resolution. October 2, 2002, Illinois State Senator Barack Obama goes to an anti-war rally in Chicago. He gives a speech declaring his opposition to going to war in Iraq. The film of this now-historic speech has been lost, save for a 13-second clip. But the text of his prepared remarks lives on. Here is the key passage. Quote, I don't oppose all wars, and I know that in this crowd today there is no shortage of patriots or of patriotism. What I am opposed to is a dumb war. What I am opposed to is a rash war. What I am opposed to is the cynical attempt by Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and other armchair weekend warriors in this administration to shove their own ideological agendas down our throats, irrespective of the costs and lives lost and in hardships born. What I am opposed to is the attempt by political hacks like Karl Rove to distract us from a rise in the uninsured, a rise in the poverty rate, a drop in the median income, to distract us from corporate scandals and a stock market that has just gone through the worst month since the Great Depression. That's what I'm opposed to. A dumb war. A rash war. A war based not on reason but on passion. Not on principle but on politics. As Obama continues this speech, he correctly predicts what would happen in Iraq if the United States invaded. A prolonged occupation of indefinite duration and cost that would inflame the worst elements in the Arab and Muslim world and bolster Al-Qaeda's recruitment efforts. In a few short years, this speech will become a crucial political asset for future senator and aspiring presidential candidate Barack Obama. October 10, 2002. House Joint Resolution 114 passed in the House of Representatives 296-113. to 113. Six Republicans voted against the resolution. 181 Democrats voted for it. The resolution passed in the Senate the next day, 77-23. One Republican voted against it. 29 Democrats voted for it. The final debate and passage of the Iraq Resolution happened just weeks before the midterm elections in November. Normally, the incumbent president's party loses seats in both chambers of Congress during midterm elections. But 2002 was an anomaly. It was the first election after 9-11, and President Bush's poll numbers were still astronomically high. The Democratic Party was unable to present a coherent opposition to the Iraq War. Ultimately, the Republicans gained seats in both chambers of Congress. After several months, the Bush administration concluded the time for diplomacy was over. March 17, 2003. President Bush issues an ultimatum to Saddam Hussein and his family. Leave Iraq within 48 hours or face military action. March 18, 2003. United Nations weapons inspectors withdraw from Iraq. March 19, 2003. Operation Iraqi Freedom Begins.
1: My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign.
0: The war itself was very quick by historical standards. Coalition forces took the capital city of Baghdad on April 9th, three weeks after the start of the conflict. In his book, To Start a War, journalist Robert Draper reports that British defense official Kevin Tebet visited the White House just after the fall of Baghdad. His old friend, Condoleezza Rice, hugged him and said, quote, We've done it, Kevin. It's just like the fall of the Soviet Union. May 1st, 2003. President Bush gives an address from the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln, declaring major combat operations in Iraq are over. Directly behind the president is a banner with the phrase, mission accomplished. White House Press Secretary Scott McClellan said the White House was behind the production of the banner but that it had been requested and ultimately set up by the Navy. In the speech, President Bush said, quote, we have difficult work to do in Iraq and our mission continues, while simultaneously declaring an end to major combat operations. Although the president never actually said the words mission accomplished, its prominent placement in the optics have led historians and journalists to dub it the mission accomplished speech. President Bush would later write in his memoir, quote, Our stagecraft had gone awry. It was a big mistake. Because of the emerging insurgency, violence, chaos, and death would continue in Iraq for years. We'll have more on that later in this episode. The mission accomplished speech and the choreography behind it would later go down as one of the worst public relations blunders in history. The Bush White House got the glowing media coverage it wanted at the time and in the immediate aftermath, but months and even years later, this photo op would backfire on them. September 11, 2002. Pakistani authorities were preparing for a series of overnight raids on several suspected al-Qaeda residences in Karachi. Ramzi bin al Sheeb was in one of these residences with two other men when the authorities came. According to a Department of Defense document, all three men held knives to their throats, threatening to kill themselves rather than being taken alive. The standoff lasted for almost four hours before Pakistani authorities were able to overpower them. According to the Department of Defense, quote, at least 22 improvised remote radio detonators and 20 packets of individually wrapped documents belonging to various members of the UBL family were found in the house. One year to the day after 9/11, Ramzi bin al was the first accomplice involved in the plot to be captured. The desire for publicity may have been bin al al-Sheib's biggest mistake. Let's backtrack to June of 2002. While Al Jazeera journalist Yozri Fawda was waiting for the tapes of the interview with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, only a handful of people at the network knew about his upcoming scoop. According to journalist Jane Mayer's book, The Dark Side, one of them was Al Jazeera Chairman Sheikh Hamad bin Thamar al-Thani, who also happened to be a cousin of the Emir of Qatar, where the network is based. Unknown to FAUDA at the time, the emir told the CIA about FAUDA's big exclusive. Mayer quotes CIA Director George Tenet saying in mid-June of 2002, My friend the emir gave us an amazing gift. In other words, the fat fuck came through. Mayer adds that Tenet had all the details of FAUDA's meeting, including the potential location of the safe house in Karachi where the interview took place and what floor they were living on. Then, it was up to the National Security Agency's global eavesdropping operation. According to Mayer, quote, The NSA reportedly pinpointed Ben al-Sheep's suspected apartment by successfully matching his voice from the Al Jazeera interview to his satellite phone. This bit of wizardry apparently led to Ben Al-Sheep's capture, along with a number of other suspects, on September 11, 2002. March 1st, 2003. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's luck was finally about to run out. As Al-Qaeda's military commander, KSM is now the group's main tactician and one of its most wanted targets. His terrorism career would come to an end in the dark of night inside a house in Rawalpindi. But the journey that led counterterrorism officials to that house began nearly a year and a half earlier. October 10, 2001, President Bush goes to FBI headquarters where he announces the names of the 22 Most Wanted Terrorists, thus leading to the creation of the FBI's Most Wanted Terrorist list, with UBL himself at the top, along with a $25 million reward for any information leading to his capture. Not all of the initial 22 names on the list were members of Al-Qaeda but many of the others on the list had rewards as high as $5 million, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed himself. However, at this point, he was only wanted for the bajinka plot. This was covered back in Episode 3. After FBI agent Ali Soufan obtained the critical intelligence about KSM's role in the 9-11 plot, his profile among international law enforcement and intelligence communities skyrockets, as well as the public at large. One key piece of intelligence recovered during the Ramzi bin al-Sheib raid was a large suitcase filled with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's personal effects. Journalist Terry McDermott described it as, quote, a virtual roadmap of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's life, which included banking records, as well as his diploma from North Carolina A&T State University. The U.S. government's reward for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would be raised to $25 million, the same as bin Laden himself. Needless to say, he was very paranoid and took measures to minimize his risk of capture or exposure. According to journalist Terry McDermott, KSM would have other people wire money for him. He would also resort to spycraft, like the use of cutouts for communications, to send and receive emails on his behalf. In time, electronic communications would become too much of a liability. Remember, the NSA and other intelligence agencies are always monitoring. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would come to rely on trusted human couriers, as bin Laden himself would.
3: By that point, KSM's security was was way better. I mean, he was staying in, in different houses virtually every night. Uh, I mean, maybe two nights in a house, but never more than that. He was moving around a lot. And and he was using uh SIM cards like for single calls and then getting a new one. You know, so his operational security had gotten a lot better.
0: Other Al-Qaeda operatives were not so cautious, and their lack of operational security would be their downfall. An example, a group of Arab fighters were hiding in a safe house. They kept going outside to smoke cigarettes. In Terry McDermott's words, quote, they just couldn't help themselves. The neighbors eventually became suspicious, and the Arabs were captured, all because they couldn't control their nicotine addiction. KSM was furious about this incident, the debacle not only cost him the fighters, but the safe house, as well as several other Al Qaeda operatives. February 28, 2003. KSM and his nephew Abdul Aziz Ali were on the road, having met with Ayman al Sawahiri the day before near the border town of Peshawar, Pakistan. That night, Muhammad arrives at a private residence at 18A Nisar Road in Rawalpindi, a city just outside of the Pakistani capital. According to journalist Terry McDermott, the property is owned by a prominent local couple. The wife was a supporter of Jamaat-e-Islami, Pakistan's largest religious political party. He also adds that it, quote, had suspicious ties to Pakistani militant groups and even al-Qaeda. Also at the house was al-Qaeda paymaster Mustafa al-Hausawi, who had been there since January. Along with Abdulaziz Ali, al hawsawi was the other Dubai-based financial facilitator for the 9-11 plot. According to the 9-11 commission report, al hawsawi quote, helped send the last four operatives to the United States from the United Arab Emirates. He also, quote, facilitated some of the operations financing. This was previously covered back in episodes 6 and 7, as was the case with his nephew, Ramsey Youssef, in the end, it was a person that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trusted who gave him up to the authorities. Terry McDermott explains. They both, well, both Ramsey and Khalid, they both get ratted out by informants in different circumstances. What yeah. does this tell you? Money. Money is for money. Both okay. cases. And they both got paid very handsomely by the American taxpayer. Yeah.
3: Well, with with Ramsey, I mean, I don't think he had any security practices whatsoever, right? Uh, the guy who ran him out was a guy he had recruited to to help him make bombs, or place bombs, I think, in in Bangkok. Um, and the and the guy was was scared to death. Uh, so he just, you I know, mean, you know, again, it shows the lack of planning. He just picked a guy. I mean, it was he was a guy he met. Yeah, you want to come, you know, help me kill some people. Uh, with, with KSM, the informant was somebody he knew 20 years before. It wasn't somebody operationally in, engaged with him.
0: According to the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the CAA's detention and interrogation program, the capture of KSM was possible because of a human source run by the agency. The report cites the source's anonymous CAA handler saying, quote, the operation was a human op pretty much from start to finish. Humint is CIA speak for human intelligence. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence's office describes it as, quote, derived from human sources. Humint remains synonymous with espionage and clandestine activities. It is the oldest method for collecting information, and until the technical revolution of the mid to late 20th century, it was the primary source of intelligence. Known colloquially as the torture report, There are very few details about this human source in the document. He is only referred to as Asset X. The declassified version of the report is heavily redacted, but it says Asset X somehow had access to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed through a blacked-out intermediary. Asset X first comes to the CIA's attention in the spring of 2001, but the agency doesn't send officers to meet with him until after 9-11. A footnote in the torture report notes, Asset X's potential access to KSM through Redacted was apparent to the CAA in 2001, prior to any CAA detainee reporting. Asset X goes to see KSM on the evening of February 28th, where, according to Terry McDermott, they spoke for more than an hour. For some mind-boggling reason, KSM allowed Asset X to bring his phone into the house, Despite his very real concerns about being captured. At one point in the evening, according to both McDermott and the torture report, Asset X sends a text message to his CA handlers, which says, quote, I am with KSM. According to McDermott, after leaving the house and making sure he was alone, Asset X contacted his CA handlers again. When they arrived, he brought them to the house at 18A Nisar Road. Once this was done, Asset X, quote, was quickly bundled off to the Islamabad airport by CA officials who put him on a plane. He was in the air and on his way out of the country before KSM even knew he was in danger. March 1st, 2003. A joint American-Pakistani team waited outside the house until just after 2 a.m. local time when they felt certain that KSM was asleep. They raided the house and take Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Mustafa al-Hasawi, and the adult son of the owners of the house into custody. Word of the raid gets out locally in Pakistan, and media soon report that KSM had been captured during the operation. The initial reports used photos of KSM from his FBI wanted posters, showing him clean-shaven, smiling, and well-dressed. A CIA counterterrorism official at Langley saw the early coverage in the Pakistani press and noted with distress that they were portraying him as a hero. He speaks with CIA Director George Tenet and gets permission to publish a far less flattering photograph of the terrorist mastermind. A CIA officer who was present during the raid in Rawalpindi had taken a series of photos of KSM right after his capture. Before taking one of them, the officer had messed up KSM's hair and then proceeded to take another. This photo of a disheveled-looking 9/11 architect was the one that the US government later released to the public. In Terry McDermott's words, quote, his first introduction to most of the rest of the world. According to Terry McDermott, sometime after KSM's capture, CIA director George Tenet flew to Pakistan to personally thank Asset X. By this point, he is $25 million richer because of the U.S. government reward money he received. Asset X now lives with his family under protective custody somewhere in the United States. KSM and Al-Hausawi are turned over to CIA custody shortly after the raid in Rawalpindi. According to the Rendition Project, KSM is held at CAA black sites in Afghanistan, Poland, Romania, and Lithuania for the next three years. According to the torture report and the Washington Post, KSM is interrogated and subjected to waterboarding for as many as 15 sessions, for potentially as long as 20 minutes each. KSM is turned over to U.S. military custody in 2006 and has been held at Guantanamo Bay ever since. He had other terror plots in various stages of planning that would play out in the months after 9-11. During a 2007 military tribunal hearing at Guantanamo Bay, KSM personally claimed full or partial responsibility for 31 plots, some going back to the mid-90s. These include the 1993 World Trade Center operation, the Bajinka Plot, proposed plots to assassinate the Pope and President Bill Clinton during their visits to the Philippines, The 9-11 operation, in his words, quote, from A to Z. Shoe bomber Richard Reed. The bombing of two nightclubs in Bali, Indonesia, which killed more than 200 people. A planned second wave of post-9-11 attacks, which was never carried out. The targets included the Library Tower in Los Angeles, the Sears Tower in Chicago, the Plaza Bank in Seattle, and the Empire State Building in New York City as well as proposed attacks against U.S. and Israeli embassies in seven different countries. KSM's pre-9-11 activities and plots were covered back in Episode 3. The Richard Reed shoe-bombing plot was covered in Episode 9. But of all the things he admitted to, one is worth noting in particular, his role in the murder of Daniel Pearl. Daniel Pearl was the Mumbai-based Southeast Asia bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. After Richard Reed's failed bombing attempt in December of 2001, he started looking into Reed's Pakistani ties. Pearl was a veteran reporter with more than 11 years at the Wall Street Journal. He was already familiar with the Al-Qaeda and terrorism beat. According to his biography from the Daniel Pearl Foundation, one of the stories he covered a few years earlier was the bombing of a pharmaceutical factory in Sudan the wake of the Africa Embassy bombings in 1998. This was covered back in episode 4. Pearl also did a story about Al Qaeda money laundering through the Tanzanite gem market. He traveled to Karachi, Pakistan the day after 9-11 because he correctly suspected that Al Qaeda and Osama Bin Laden were responsible for the attacks. He was aware of the dangers of reporting from Karachi as an American journalist in those days. On September 17th, he wrote to a friend, quote, Hi from Karachi, which would be a great city if we weren't scared to go out of the hotel. But Pearl still persisted. On September 20th, Pearl emailed a friend, writing, quote, I got hooked up with one of OBL's buddies, who has been taking me around to see the people who are secretly pro-UBL. I'm writing a story about how everybody here thinks the Jews did it, bound to piss everybody off, but I think people should know what people in other parts of the world really think and why, right? Those emails are cited in the final report of the Pearl Project at Georgetown University, an investigative journalism effort to solve Daniel Pearl's murder. According to the Pearl Project, he was looking into a story first reported by the Boston Globe that the cleric Sheikh Mubarak Ali Shah Gilani was shoe bomber Richard Reed's facilitator. In reality, we now know that after 9-11, KSM designated his nephew, Ali Abdul Aziz, to be Richard Reed's facilitator. This same nephew is currently held in Guantanamo for his role as a financial facilitator for the September 11th hijackers. The 9-11 Commission report says he assisted nine of them between April and June of 2001 as they came through Dubai. Quote, He helped them with plane tickets, traveler's checks, and hotel reservations. He also taught them about everyday aspects of life in the West, such as purchasing clothes and ordering food. This was previously covered back in episodes 6 and 7. According to the Pearl Project, Pearl, quote, wanted to take the story to the next level by locating and interviewing the elusive Gilani. He would be aided in this search by his fixer, a local journalist, as they sought local contacts who might put them in touch with Gilani. Word of Pearl's inquiries got around in local Islamist circles. One person who heard them was a radical named Omar Sheikh, who initially suspected Pearl might be a Western spy. Sheikh sent word to Pearl through an intermediary that he could arrange an interview with Gilani. January 11, 2002. Daniel Pearl goes to the Akbar International Hotel in Rawalpindi to meet with Omar Sheikh, who is using an alias. According to the Pearl Project, quote, from that moment on, however, Pearl was heading into a trap. The Pearl Project notes that Pearl had no way of knowing that Sheikh had no connection to Gilani or that Sheikh was an experienced kidnapper. Several weeks earlier, American prosecutors had obtained a sealed indictment for Omar Sheikh over his role in the 1994 kidnapping of an American tourist in India. He had been captured and jailed in India for his involvement in that plot, but was later released in 1999 as part of a swap for passengers on a hijacked Indian Airlines flight. Two days before the meeting at the Akbar International Hotel, the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan had met with the country's foreign minister to press for the rendition of Omar Sheikh on kidnapping charges. January 21, 2002. While Daniel Pearl and his wife are at a clinic in Islamabad getting a sonogram of their unborn son that he would never meet, Omar Sheikh was in Karachi putting together his kidnapping team. According to the Pearl Project, Sheikh tapped, quote, a local network of militants who would provide the muscle for his scheme. They were mostly born in the 60s and 70s, many of them with roots in the northeast Punjab province who came of age during the 80s, as fighters against the Soviets who were receiving covert aid from the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan. The Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan was covered back in Episode 1. According to the Pearl Project, after the Soviet withdrawal in 1989, quote, an alphabet soup of Pakistani militant groups took off in the Pakistani province of Punjab, fueled by the Islamist transformation of Pakistan. Many of them lived in quote The same dicey Karachi neighborhood of Nazimabad and listening to sermons from radicalized imams at neighborhood mosques. The plot was ready. Sheikh told Daniel Pearl that in two days he would get a rare interview with Ghilani in Karachi. January 22, 2002. Daniel Pearl and his wife fly from Islamabad to Karachi for his big interview scheduled to take place the following night. Meanwhile, preparations for the kidnapping continue. Omar Sheikh gives money to a couple of young militants so that they can buy a Polaroid camera and two film cartridges. The job of taking the proof of life photo would fall on two other militants who had to be shown how to use the camera. One of them was a follower of the strict Dio school of thought in Islam and made $240 a month to support his wife and four children. The job of finding a safe house where Pearl would be held fell to another veteran of the Afghanistan Jihad in the 80s. At the time, he was working as a driver for a local business, earning about $100 a month to support his wife and five daughters. The driver's solution was a compound owned by his boss in a remote neighborhood outside of town called Asanabad. The landowner's brother told the Pearl Project his brother was innocent he didn't know that the compound was being used for the Pearl kidnapping. He said his brother was involved with a charity called the Al-Rashid Trust. This is a giant red flag. After 9-11, the United States said that this charity funneled money to Al-Qaeda. Sheikh wrote two copies of the ransom note, one in English, the other in Urdu. With the logistics for the kidnapping pretty much set, it was time to set Daniel Pearl up. Omar Sheikh emailed Pearl using a fake persona, promising to connect Pearl with students of Gilani at their meeting the following night. January 23, 2002. The next day, Daniel Pearl goes to the U.S. consulate in Karachi for a meeting with Randall Bennett, the regional security officer. He asks Bennett how safe it would be to meet with Gilani. Bennett warns him to only meet with Gilani in a public place. At around 4.30 p.m., a taxi comes to pick Pearl up at the home of Azra Namani, a Wall Street Journal colleague who was on book leave. He and his wife were staying with her during his trip to Karachi. Pearl tells them he'd be back by 9 p.m. This was the last time they saw him. He had two other appointments that afternoon before the meeting with Galani for journalistic research. His taxi took him to his main meeting that evening, set to begin at the village restaurant at 7 p.m. Pearl was standing outside the restaurant, waiting, assuming it would be like so many other meetings with sources in the past. The Pearl Project notes that he, quote, stood alone in the most populated city in Pakistan, out of the war zone, with just a writing pad labeled reporter's notebook, a pen, and a shoulder bag. A car arrived. The driver told him to get in. According to a U.S. State Department cable later published by WikiLeaks, quote, Daniel got in without hesitation and sat quietly. The car took Pearl to the safe house, located about an hour away on the outskirts of Karachi. On arrival, Pearl was greeted by armed men. After getting out of the car, he was told to take off his clothes and hand over all his belongings. His camera, tape recorder, wristwatch, eyeglasses and case, wallet, mobile phone cards, shoes, and a credit card. Pearl complied. January 24, 2002. Daniel Pearl's friends, family, and colleagues begin alerting everyone that the American journalist had been missing since his scheduled meeting at the restaurant at 7 p.m. the night before. Pakistani police start checking his laptop for potential clues as to his whereabouts. Pearl's wife, Marianne, calls the Wall Street Journal, who in turn calls State Department headquarters in Washington. She also calls her in-laws. Azra Namani later speaks to Randall Bennett, the security officer at the Karachi consulate that Pearl had met with the day before. He gives her the names of trusted Pakistani police officers that she should call. One of the Pakistani police investigators assigned to the case calls a friend of Ghilani's named in the Boston Globe article that Pearl was trying to verify. The friend told him that Ghilani would never meet a journalist in Karachi, far away from his home in Lahore, a city some 750 miles to the northeast. Meanwhile, Pearl's kidnappers were handing him a copy of that day's edition of Dawn, an English language newspaper and took proof of life pictures on the Polaroid camera. By this point, the kidnappers had given Pearl a tracksuit and jacket to wear instead of his clothes. January 26, 2002. About 72 hours after the kidnapping, Daniel Pearl's captors send out a ransom email from a computer at an internet cafe. Omar Sheikh had two of his accomplices go to a local computer store to buy a Canon printer and a Hewlett-Packard scanner with money he gave them, they scanned the Polaroid photos and saved them to a floppy disk. The email would have got out sooner, but there were technical problems. According to the Pearl Project, the kidnappers quote couldn't get their emails sent. The images were too big, internet connections were too slow, nothing worked. The kidnappers use a newly created account, kidnapperguy at hotmail.com, to send a message containing attached scans of four Polaroid photos of Pearl in captivity. The email would be sent out to journalists. Its subject line reads American CIA officer in our custody. The email demands the release of Pakistanis and other foreign nationals held at Guantanamo Bay, as well as, quote, all Pakistanis being illegally detained by the FBI inside America. The FBI saw the email the next morning and officially declared the Pearl case a criminal investigation. Both the CIA and the Wall Street Journal subsequently issued separate statements saying Daniel Pearl was not a spy for the US government. January 30th, 2002, the Pakistani newspaper, The News International, publishes a report written by local Washington Post stringer which mentions that Daniel Pearl is Jewish. It is not known if the kidnappers read the story, although Pearl's Judaism would make him a much less sympathetic victim to Islamic radicals and other like-minded people in Pakistan. At 4.35 p.m. that day, the kidnappers sent out another email from a different account, strangepeoples.hotmail.com, from an internet cafe. Though it was filled with typos, perhaps deliberately, its message was clear. Quote, we have interrogated Mr. D. Pearl, and we have come to the conclusion that, contrary to what we thought earlier, he is not working for the CIA. In fact, he is working for Mossad. Therefore, we will execute him within 24 hours unless America fulfills our demands. Omar Sheikh also had plans to stir the geopolitical pot by trying to implicate India, Pakistan's arch-rival, in the Daniel Pearl kidnapping. He ordered one of his accomplices to contact the American consulate and embassy and to give them the phone numbers for the interior minister and prime minister of India. The Pakistani government was already accusing India of staging the kidnapping, so the hope was this would stoke conspiracy theories circulating inside Pakistan. According to the Pearl Project, the accomplice got cold feet and took out the SIM card from his mobile phone so he couldn't receive any more phone calls from Omar Sheikh. Another person who also happened to be in Karachi during this period was 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The Pearl kidnapping was all over the local press in Pakistan, as well as internationally, but that was not what drew KSM to the case. He would later tell FBI agents that not long after the Pearl kidnapping, he received a phone call from Saif al Adl, a high-ranking Egyptian who was one of the original members of Al-Qaeda going back to the Soviet war in Afghanistan al adls background and his role in the early days of Al-Qaeda were previously covered in episodes 1 and 2. Sources familiar with KSM's interview told the Pearl Project that the gist of that conversation with al adl was, quote, Listen, he's been kidnapped. These people don't know what to do with him. They want to know if we want him. KSM said he thought of the kidnapping as an opportunity. According to Al-Qaeda expert Rohan Gunaratna, He thought that in the aftermath of 9-11 when the United States had bombed and killed so many Al-Qaeda fighters, including top leaders like Mohammed Attaf, that KSM wanted to respond in kind. Quote, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at that time wanted to send a message to the United States that we go tit for tat. According to the Pearl Project, KSM later told FBI agents that he went to the house where Pearl was being held for two reasons. First. He wanted to be sure he would get the death penalty if he was captured by the United States. Second, propaganda. In his own words to the FBI, quote, conveniently Danny was Jewish. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, accompanied by two men, went to the house where Daniel Pearl was being held. Witnesses who were present described them as Arabs, although accounts are somewhat contradictory as to the timing and sequencing of events, along with some of the details. There were allegations of money being exchanged between the Arabs and the businessman who owned the land. The businessman, who was mentioned earlier in this episode as being involved with the Rashid Trust, which was a front for Al-Qaeda, allegedly is the one who called the Arabs, who would do the actual killing. Regardless of which version of events is correct, once the Arabs arrived at the scene, Daniel Pearl's fate was pretty much sealed. According to Pearl Project interviews with Pakistani police officers and a review of official police records, this is what happened next. Someone brought a video camera, and the kidnappers began filming Pearl. He was asked a series of questions by one of his captors who spoke English. Pearl was given a script to read as the camera kept rolling. One of the lines he was forced to read was, Stop the cruelty and violence against the Muslims. At some point, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed beheads Pearl with a knife as the camera was filming, though the killer's face is kept out of the frame. Daniel Pearl's last words were, I am a Jew. During a March 2007 military tribunal hearing at Guantanamo, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would admit to killing Daniel Pearl. Pearl's body was dismembered and placed into shopping bags before being buried in a hastily dug hole in the courtyard on the property. KSM and his companions took the murder weapon, the camera, and some other knives they had brought. Pearl's bedding and other personal effects remained at the scene to be recovered later as evidence. February 21, 2002. John Mulligan, an FBI agent working on the Pearl case out of the U.S. consulate, gets a phone call from a colleague at the Bureau's New York office. The New York agent had a lead, a source, who had a source, Who said he had the video of Daniel Pearl's murder. Within about 20 minutes of the initial phone call, the source with the video was willing to make a deal, $200,000 for the tape, if it was verified as authentic, but there was a catch. The source would only provide the footage to somebody from NBC News. Mulligan set up a meeting for that evening in the lobby of the Karachi Sheraton to make the exchange. Mulligan and another FBI agent would pose undercover as NBC News journalists. The intermediary, who identified himself using the false name Abdul Khalik, said he was a journalist with Online International News Network. He was holding a compact digital video camera. It was later discovered that Abdul Khalik had gotten the video from one of the young men who had been guarding Daniel Pearl at the house. The young man had been instructed to publish the murder video by his militant boss. Instead, he asked a militant friend to help him sell it. By 9.40pm local time, Mulligan had physical custody of the tape. The video was confirmation to the American and Pakistani officials working the case that he had been killed. Within a matter of days, Daniel Pearl's murder makes headlines around the world. May 17, 2002. Almost four months after his abduction, U.S. and Pakistani investigators discovered Daniel Pearl's remains on the grounds of the private home where he was held during the final days of his life. April 2003 In Iraq, as the initial high of toppling Saddam Hussein wore off, realities began to sink in the coalition forces who had been the Iraqi's liberators were now their occupiers. They were responsible for the hopes, dreams, and security of tens of millions of Iraqis, often with conflicting sectarian, religious, and political loyalties. Secretary of State Colin Powell had specifically warned President Bush of this during a briefing on August 5th, 2002. Quote, you are going to be the proud owner of 25 million people, you will own all their hopes, aspirations, and problems. You'll own it all. The comments were first reported in Bob Woodward's 2004 book, Plan of Attack. He also noted, quote, Privately, Powell and Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage called this the Pottery Barn Rule. You break it, you own it. A new U.S. entity known as the Coalition Provisional Authority would act as a transitional Iraqi government it would be responsible for running the country after the fall of Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist regime until Iraqis had set up a new government that would take over from the CPA. The CPA was initially led by retired U.S. Army General Jay Garner for almost three weeks. He was subsequently replaced by Paul Bremer, a former U.S. ambassador and aide to Henry Kissinger. May 16, 2003. Within four days of arriving in the country, Bremer issues CPA Order No. 1, banning Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath party and removing tens of thousands of its members from government jobs. The CIA station chief protested the decision, to no avail. Bremer compared it to the denazification of post-war Germany. May 23, 2002. Paul Bremer issues CPA Order No. 2, disbanding the Iraqi army in its entirety not just the elite units loyal to Saddam Hussein. Bremer meant well. Both Orders 1 and 2 were meant to assure Iraq's Shiites and Kurds who had suffered during Saddam's rule. But in reality, Bremer created the conditions for hundreds of thousands of newly unemployed Iraqi men, many of them armed and with at least some military training, to start the beginnings of an insurgency. June 22, 2003. An Iraqi man tips off the U.S. military that Saddam Hussein's sons, Uday and Qusay, were hiding in his house in Mosul. The man's neighbors, who were interviewed by CNN later, said that he claimed to be a cousin of Saddam Hussein's, a claim they were skeptical of because he had been imprisoned by the regime for 10 years. Each brother had a $15 million bounty on his head from the U.S. government. The rewards, combined with the alleged 10 years spent in prison... Were probably powerful motivators for the man to tip off the U.S. military. There was a firefight between the Hussein brothers and the U.S. military. The raid was led by Task Force 20, a military unit formed to hunt down Saddam Hussein and his top supporters. They had backing from 200 soldiers from the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division, and Apache helicopter was called in to provide air support. Uday and Qusay Hussein were killed as was Kusei's teenage son, along with a bodyguard who was also inside the house. The tipster presumably got the $30 million reward. December 13, 2003. Saddam Hussein is discovered and captured alive by U.S. forces. The mission was named Operation Red Dawn by U.S. Army Captain Jeffrey McMurray, a reference to the 1984 movie of the same title. According to the US Army's history of the operation, the deposed Iraqi dictator had been hiding inside a spider hole on a farm in Adwar. When he was captured, he raised his hands and said, I am Saddam Hussein, I am the president of Iraq, and I am willing to negotiate. But the insurgency and violence did not stop, even with Saddam's sons dead and Saddam himself in a prison cell ending the notion that they were somehow directing the attacks while on the run. January 28, 2004. The Iraq Survey Group was created with a specific mission of finding Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, the predicate that formed the basis for the 2003 invasion. After looking for nearly a year, they found nothing. The former top US weapons inspector, David Kay testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee. He broke the bad news to the American people and the world.
2: It is time to begin the fundamental analysis of how we got here, what led us here, and what we need to do in order to ensure that we are equipped with the best possible intelligence as we face these issues in the future. Let me begin by saying we were almost all wrong and I certainly include myself here. Uh, Senator Kennedy knows very directly, Senator Kennedy and I talked on several occasions prior to the war that my view was that the best evidence that I had seen was that Iraq indeed had weapons of mass destruction. I would also point out that many governments that chose not to support this war, certainly the French President Chirac as I recall in April of uh, last year referred to iraq's possession of wmd the german certainly the intelligence service believed that there were wmd it turns out uh, we were all wrong probably in my judgment and that is most disturbing
0: the iraq survey group's final report published in september of two thousand four concluded quote, while a small number of old abandoned chemical munitions have been discovered ISG judges that Iraq unilaterally destroyed its undeclared chemical weapons stockpile in 1991. There are no credible indications that Baghdad resumed production of chemical munitions thereafter, a policy ISG attributes to Baghdad's desire to see sanctions lifted, or rendered ineffectual, or its fear of force against it, should weapons of mass destruction be discovered. Under political pressure, the White House set up an independent commission to look into the WMD debacle. After the commission published its final report in March of 2005, its co-chairman, federal judge Lawrence Silberman, said this during a White House press conference. The intelligence
2: community was absolutely uniform and uniformly wrong about the existence of weapons of mass destruction, and uh, they pushed that position.
0: It was the biggest intelligence failure since 9-11, only a few years earlier. March 31, 2004 One of the most infamous early episodes of trouble in post-Saddam Iraq happened in the city of Fallujah. Four American contractors working for the private military company Blackwater USA were traveling through Fallujah in two sport utility vehicles. Their mission, according to a PBS report, was to provide security for trucks belonging to a food catering company called ESS. The contractors all had prior military experience. Three were former Navy SEALs. One was a former Army Ranger. They were paid about $600 per day. There was a problem that day. Contractually, Blackwater was supposed to supply two SUVs with a combined total of six guards, three men per vehicle. That morning, they only had four, meaning that the men in both cars were short a rear gunner. One of the four men had complained to a friend that this team had never worked together before. According to the New York Times, at about 10.30 a.m. local time, the streets were suddenly filled with masked gunmen who fired on the vehicles with automatic weapons. According to the Times report on the incident, quote, some witnesses said the Americans were still alive when one boy came running up with a jug of gasoline. Soon, both vehicles were fireballs. Their bodies were burned and mutilated. After the fires had cooled down, a mob strung up the bodies on a nearby iron bridge that crossed the Euphrates River. According to the Times, quote, several news crews filmed the mayhem. The images of a frenzied crowd mutilating bodies were reminiscent of the scene from Somalia in 1993, when a mob dragged the body of an American soldier through the streets of Mogadishu. Local Iraqis interviewed by The Times said they believed the contractors, who were riding in unmarked SUVs, worked for the CIA. Quote, this is what these spies deserve, one Fallujah resident told The Times. The bridge was later unofficially dubbed Blackwater Bridge because of this incident. As liberation turned into occupation, a Jordanian Al Qaeda operative was laying the groundwork for an insurgency that would plague the United States military and the broader Middle East for years. His real name was Ahmad Fadil Nazal al Khalila, but the world would come to know and fear him as Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. He was the founder of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, a group that would later evolve into the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant, more commonly known by the acronym ISIS. He was also part of the United States case for the invasion of Iraq. Here's Secretary of State Colin Powell addressing the United Nations on February 5, 2003.
1: Iraq and terrorism go back decades. Baghdad trains Palestine Liberation Front members in small arms and explosives. Sodom uses the Arab Liberation Front to funnel money to the families of Palestinian suicide bombers in order to prolong the Intifada. And it's no secret that Sodom's own intelligence service was involved in dozens of attacks or attempted assassinations in the 1990s. But what I want to bring to your attention today is the potentially much more sinister nexus between Iraq and the al-Qaeda terrorist network, a nexus that combines classic terrorist organizations and modern methods of murder. Iraq today harbors a deadly terrorist network headed by Abu Musab al-Zakawi, an associate and collaborator of Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda lieutenants. Zakawi, a Palestinian born in Jordan, fought in the Afghan war more than a decade ago. Returning to Afghanistan in 2000, he oversaw a terrorist training camp. One of his specialties, and one of the specialties of this camp, is poisons. When our coalition ousted the Taliban, the Zakhawi Network helped establish another poison and explosive training center camp. And this camp is located in northeastern Iraq. You see a picture of this camp. The network is teaching its operatives how to produce ricin and other poisons, Let me remind you how ricin works. Less than a pinch. Imagine a pinch of salt. Less than a pinch of ricin. Eating just this amount in your food would cause shock, followed by circulatory failure. Death comes within 72 hours, and there is no antidote. There is no cure. It is fatal. Washington Post journalist Joby Warwick described Powell's statement
0: about Iraq harboring Zarkawi whom he characterizes as an associate and collaborator of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, quote, technically true, but widely off the mark. The speech was ultimately a disaster. Powell had undermined his own credibility and by extension that of the United States, especially after many of its claims fell apart and no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. On top of all of that, Powell had elevated Zarqawi's profile on a global scale among jihadists and the public at large. A Jordanian Islamist named Abu Haniyeh later said, quote, With that speech, Colin Powell gave him popularity and notoriety. Before anyone knew who he was, he was the secretary of state of the world's most powerful government saying Zarqawi was important. Now his fame would extend through the Arab world, from Iraq and Syria to the Maghreb and the Arabian Peninsula people were joining Al-Qaeda because of him. Zarqawi's relationship with Osama bin Laden and loyalty to the Al-Qaeda organization was a bit more complicated than Powell's description, and will be covered later in this episode. Let's get into his background. Here's Washington Post reporter Joby Warwick. He is the Pulitzer-winning author of the book Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS.
4: He was essentially a small-time criminal who wanted to fight in the Holy War. So he goes off to Afghanistan you know, really gets radicalized there and then wants to be part of Al-Qaeda. And he's just too crazy, too radical for them. And so he's basically given permission to go off on his own. Al-Qaeda, you know, Bin Laden is, is you know, in Kandahar. They've got their own little nest down there. They send Zarqawi out to the West, to the area around Herat. And he becomes... Uh, the leader of this essentially of a, a sort of a sub wing of Al Qaeda that that uh, mostly attracts people from the Levant. And it's it's got its own codes. And, and, and Zarqawi is the leader of it. And what you see happening is uh, a, a guy with uh, essentially no religious training of any kind, but a, a very radical, very violent young man who creates an organization in his own image. And so later on, we see this thing called Al Qaeda and Iraq developed in in two thousand three and four, and then later when it becomes known as ISIS, it's an offshoot that's even more brutal, uh, fanatical, uh, more bloodthirsty than Al Qaeda's uh, movement ever was. And Zarqawi essentially is the godfather of that.
0: Is he more into the, the the religious aspect of jihad, the theological aspect of jihad, or the violence and mayhem?
4: So it's more really the the, the the latter, I think, because he he doesn't because he's not a trained scholar, um, his 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 views about about proper jihad and about the proper way to to sort to, to of worship is sort of driven by his own instincts, and so he ends up kind of partnering with with uh, imams who will essentially echo whatever he says and, and give, you know, issue fatwas to, to justify whatever he does, including, you know, burning of human beings or killing of, of innocence. He, he gets away with all of it because he doesn't really know any better. He doesn't understand the theology and he essentially makes it up as he goes along. So the, the, the theology becomes kind of a way of justifying and kind of creating cover for the, the terrible things he wants to do anyway.
0: Abu Musab al-Zarqawi is believed to have been born on or about October 30th, 1966. There are different dates available depending on the source. He was the youngest of 10 children. His birthplace was the Jordanian city of Zarqa, which would later provide him his nom de guerre. It's an industrial city, Jordan's third largest. According to journalist Marianne Weaver, with an estimated population of 850,000 in 2006, it's located some 20 miles northeast of the capital city of Amman. A profile of Zarkawi written by Weaver for The Atlantic described him as, quote, a Bedouin from the Bani Hassan tribe. She describes the Bani Hassan as one of the most influential Bedouin tribes of the Middle East. According to journalist Joby Warwick's book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, Zarqawi's father was a civil servant who worked in Zarqa's municipal government. His mother was described as devoutly religious, who quote, doted on the young boy above his seven sisters and two brothers. As a child, the young Zarqawi would spend hours playing in a local cemetery, which was the closest thing his neighborhood had to a public park. As a teenager, Warwick writes that, quote, The graves became the backdrop for his first forays into delinquency and crime. Zarkawi's criminal career began at age 12. According to Warwick, he cut a neighborhood boy during a street fight. As he grew, he would progress to pimping, drug dealing, and assault. By his late teens, he had tattoos, drank heavily, and enjoyed fighting. In Warwick's words, the young Zarkawi quote, took pleasure in brutalizing his opponents with fist and blade. According to Warwick, he dropped out of high school, quote, Skated through his two years of compulsory military service and got fired from the city job his father arranged for him. Zerkawi married his cousin at age 21. They would eventually have four children together. By this point, his mother recognized her son's intellectual limitations and that he was never going to have a normal job. According to Warwick, it was at her suggestion that Zarqawi joined Islamists. He embraced Islam wholeheartedly, he gave up drinking and became a regular at Quran discussions and Friday prayers. He took in propaganda videos and audiotapes of Islamist conflicts in Afghanistan, Bosnia and Chechnya. When the prayer leader at a local mosque asked for volunteers to fight the communist oppressors in Afghanistan, Zarqawi raised his hand. Zarka is also home to the oldest Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan. Zarka Camp was established by the International Committee of the Red Cross in 1949, in the aftermath of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. According to the United Nations, the camp's initial population was 8,000 refugees. More than 70 years later, that number has grown to more than 46,000, and accounts for roughly 47% of the refugee population in Jordan. An estimated 80% of the inhabitants of old Zarqa are Palestinian. It is perhaps for this reason that Zarqa is what Marianne Weaver describes as one of Jordan's most militant cities and a magnet for Islamic activists. Zarqa also produced many Jordanian volunteers who fought abroad in Afghanistan and Iraq. A former Jordanian intelligence official told The Atlantic that there were four major turning points in Zarqawi's life. The first of them was his first trip to Afghanistan. Zarqawi arrived at the Afghanistan-Pakistan border at some point in 1989, after the Soviet withdrawal in February of that year. He is about 22 or 23 years old at this point, and it was his first time traveling outside of Jordan. He was too late to fight the Russians, but he did fight against the pro-Soviet Najibullah government that was now left to fend for itself. He would spend the next four years in Afghanistan as it continued its path of failed statehood that would eventually lead to the rise of the Taliban. According to Marianne Weaver, while in Afghanistan, he marries his second wife, a woman of mixed Jordanian and Palestinian heritage. They would have a son together. It was during this period that Zarqawi first meets Al Qaeda, though he would not meet Osama bin Laden until much later. A Jordanian counter-terrorism official told The Atlantic that Zarqawi trained at the Sada camp in Pakistan, near the Afghan border. That camp belonged to the Services Bureau, Bin Laden and Abdullah Azam's pre-Al Qaeda organization. While he was there, he trained under Mohammed Atef, Bin Laden's most loyal lieutenant. He would eventually become Al Qaeda's military commander and one of the co-planners of the 9-11 plot. Atif's background and role within Al-Qaeda were previously covered in episodes 2, 4 and 7. Bin Laden's history with Abdullah Azam and the Services Bureau was covered back in episode 1. For a time, Zarqawi went by the moniker Al-Gharib, meaning the Strangler. He picked up the alias during his days fighting in the Afghan Civil War. According to Joby Warwick, he had many enemies, for political, ideological or religious purposes. At the top of his list was Jordan's King Hussein, who Zarqawi saw as the illegitimate leader of an artificial country who had made peace with neighboring Israel. Servants of the regime, prison guards, soldiers, bureaucrats, and politicians were also the subject of his ire. 1993, Zarqawi returns to Jordan from Afghanistan as a combat veteran with a few years of experience on the battlefield. According to Joby Warwick's book Black Flags, quote, he had gained formal military training at a camp operated by Abdul Razul Sayaf, the Afghan rebel commander who would also mentor Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of the September 11, 2001 attacks on New York and Washington. Zarqawi had been away from his home country for several years by this point, so there was bound to be a bit of culture shock when he returned. Marianne Weaver points out that while Zarqawi was away, Jordan and Israel began diplomatic negotiations, which resulted in a peace treaty that was signed in 1994. The Palestinians signed on to the Oslo Accords of 1993, and the Iraqis had lost the Gulf War in 1991. Jordan's branch of the Muslim Brotherhood had agreed to support King Hussein in exchange for being allowed to participate in public life and parliament. Unemployment was up in Jordan because of a privatization drive agreed to with the International Monetary Fund. Subsequently, Weaver writes, Small underground Islamist groups had therefore begun to appear, composed largely of men who had fought in the Afghan jihad, and who were guided by the increasingly loud voices of militant clerics who felt the Muslim Brotherhood had been co-opted by the state. Zarqawi's attempt to reassimilate into a very different Jordanian society than the one he left was probably made even more jarring after spending years in Afghanistan, which was centuries behind the rest of the world, technologically, theologically, and socially. According to Joby Warwick, he complained to friends about pretty much everything he saw on his return immodestly dressed women, mixing of unmarried couples at cafes and cinemas liquor stores, and pornography vendors. His mother and sisters refusing to wear the burqa-style veil, which covers the entire face worn by Afghan women, and his relatives allowing their families to watch un-Islamic TV shows and movies. He tracked down an old acquaintance from Afghanistan, a preacher and Islamic scholar named Abu Muhammad al Makdisi. They started Quranic study groups for veterans of the Afghanistan Jihad, Many of the people who attended these study groups had similar mindsets to Zarqawi. His study group evolved into a terror cell. By early 1994, the group had a name, Bayat al-Imam, which translates to the oath of allegiance to the prayer leader. The group also got a small stock of weapons from Makdisi, who had been living in Kuwait at the time of the Iraqi invasion in 1990. McDesey acquired a small arsenal of mines, grenades, and artillery rockets from the Iraqi army after it retreated from occupied Kuwait. He hid the weapons inside his household furniture when he moved back to Jordan after the war. Now all they needed was an excuse to mobilize the group. February 25, 1994. A Jewish extremist opens fire on Muslims praying at a religious shrine in the West Bank town of Hebron. This attack inspires Bayat al-Imam to retaliate by attacking an Israeli outpost on the border with their small arsenal. But the plot was foiled by Jordanian intelligence. Zarqawi was arrested on March 29th. He and a dozen other members of the cell would sign a confession, admitting to possession of illegal weapons and plotting an act of terrorism. Zarqawi would receive a 15-year prison sentence which theoretically should have kept him behind bars until 2009. A former Jordanian intelligence official called his years in prison the second major turning point in Zarqawi's life. February 7, 1999. Jordan's King Hussein dies after a long battle with cancer ending a reign of nearly 46 years. By this point, Zarqawi has been in a Jordanian prison for five years when he gets a lucky break.
4: In Zarqawi's life, there are all these moments where history could have turned. You know, there's just, he, if, if he had, um, he, he was in prison in 1999 and, and would have stayed there until his forties, but then the king of, of Jordan dies. And because of the death of the king, there's a general amnesty granted and political prisoners are released. And somehow Zarqawi gets on that list and he gets freed, you know, 15 years ahead of schedule. So all these little moments in his life, um, you know, give him new opportunities.
0: About six months after his release from prison, Zarqawi is back in custody again. This time he gets caught at the airport with his mother in a pair of tickets to Pakistan. They were both held and interrogated by Jordanian intelligence for days, if not weeks. Sarkawi told them he wanted to start over in Pakistan, launching a honey business. Once that was up and running, he would send for the rest of his family in Jordan. There was a mutual contempt and combativeness during the interrogations. Ultimately, the Jordanians had no reason to continue detaining them so both mother and son were released and free to go on to Pakistan. It was a decision that the Jordanians would come to regret a few months later. November 30th, 1999 Jordanian intelligence is wiretapping an Islamist militant who receives a phone call from Afghanistan. A phrase from the Afghan caller sets off alarm bells, quote, the time for training is over. In a matter of days, the Jordanians would arrest 16 people and discover bomb making manuals and chemicals in an underground tunnel. Among their intended targets was the Radisson Hotel in Amman on New Year's Eve 1999. The CIA gets wind of the plot and U.S. counterterrorism officials are sent to Jordan to help with the investigation into what would become known as the Millennium Plot. According to Joby Warwick, organized by an Al-Qaeda associate in eastern Afghanistan, the Jordanian portion of the plan called for a wave of bombings and small arms attacks targeting not only Amman's Radisson, but also an Israeli border crossing and a pair of Christian shrines popular with Western tourists. A separate plot to attack the Los Angeles International Airport was foiled when US customs agent arrested the would-be bomber as he attempted to cross the US-Canadian border in a car packed with explosives. Over time, 28 suspects would be implicated in the plot, including Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. His role was minor, described only as a consultant or advisor, but it was enough to get him new criminal charges and a guilty conviction in absentia in Jordan. This was the first time American intelligence had ever heard of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. The Millennium Plot is covered in more detail in Episode 5. Once in Pakistan, Zarqawi meant to continue on to the Caucasus, where he hoped to fight the Russians in Chechnya, but he wasn't able to. Then, six months after arriving, Pakistani officials told him his visa was expired and he would have to leave the country, which meant a near-certain return to a Jordanian prison because of his role in the Millennium Plot. It was at this point he decided to return to Afghanistan. A former Jordanian official called Zarqawi's return to Afghanistan the third major turning point in his life. He made his way to Kandahar, where he expected a warm welcome at Osama bin Laden's headquarters. Instead, bin Laden refused to even see him. Keep in mind, this was about two years after the Africa Embassy bombings put bin Laden on the U.S. government's radar and the FBI's most wanted list. The Clinton administration had already tried to kill him once with a series of missile launches back in 1998. He had very good reason to be fearful of outsiders. The 1998 embassy bombings and the subsequent U.S. response was covered back in episode 4. After Zarqawi had waited around in an Al-Qaeda guesthouse for about two weeks, Bin Laden sends his trusted deputy, Saif al-Adil, to meet with him. Al-Adil later floats an idea to his boss. Use Zarqawi as a liaison or ally on the ground in Jordan and Palestine, given his local jihadist connections. This would give Al-Qaeda a presence in a region of the Middle East where they had none. To prove himself, they would give Zarqawi his own camp to run, hundreds of miles away from the main Al-Qaeda camps and guest houses in eastern Afghanistan. He would also have some degree of autonomy. Zarqawi got some money to start the operation, which would be designed for him to train Islamists from the Levant. The Levant is defined by the Middle East Institute as the region encompassing what is now Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel-Palestine, and Jordan. It covers a combined area of about 730,000 square kilometers and has roughly 500 kilometers of Mediterranean coastline among them. Zarqawi's camp would be in western Afghanistan near the city of Herat, which is right along the Iranian border. Despite his dislike of Shia Muslims, many of Zarqawi's recruits came to his camp through Iran Some Iranians even ran safe houses and smuggled men and supplies into Afghanistan. Zarqawi had no knowledge of or involvement in the 9-11 plot, but when the American military response inevitably came, his camp in Herat was one of the targets. Zarqawi and his people headed east to help with the defense of Kandahar. He was in a house with other al-Qaeda leaders that got hit by a U.S. bomb, burying him in the rubble. He survived with several broken ribs. While Bin Laden was making his seemingly last stand at Tora Bora, Zarqawi and his followers fled west, over the border into Iran. The Iranian government and intelligence might have looked the other way in the past, but after 9-11 that was no longer possible. They began detaining suspected Al-Qaeda members coming across the border. Zarqawi kept going west, into the mountains of northeastern Iraq. This was an area controlled by the Kurds, which had some degree of autonomy from the Saddam Hussein regime. The Iraqi military had no jurisdiction or presence here. The U.S. no-fly zone implemented over the region after 1991 was also a big bonus. Once he was there, Zarqawi went looking for a Sunni extremist organization known as Ansar al-Islam, which translates to Helpers of Islam. Their worldviews and religion were comparable to those of the Taliban. With a handful of Herat followers and a little bit of leftover money, Sarkawi would set out to rebuild the Herat camp in this new environment. While in Iraq, he was also able to secretly get medical treatment at a Baghdad hospital for his broken ribs. Joby Warwick points out that at this point, nobody from Al-Qaeda, least of all Bin Laden himself, would be coming to check on him. They were all on the run or in hiding after the American invasion of Afghanistan. Zarqawi had not pledged Bayat to Bin Laden either and would not do so for several years. Once in Iraq, he would largely be left to his own devices. A former Jordanian intelligence official called Zarqawi's move to Iraq the fourth major turning point in his life. Thus, this was the man the Bush administration pointed to as evidence of Iraq's ties to Al-Qaeda nearly 18 months later. Zarqawi gets another lucky break in 2002. The United States military could have taken him out, along with at least some of the founding fathers of the Iraqi insurgency in a single strike, but ultimately chose not to.
4: So there was, you know, Zarqawi had his own little camp. He had it in in Afghanistan, you know, pre-9-11. After 9-11, when when Al-Qaeda scatters, he moves into the mountains between Iraq and and Iran. So he's up in the Kurdish area, just on the border, and he creates his own little camp. Um, The United States knows about this camp. We're watching it very carefully. We realize there are very bad people in it. And there was a a plan to, to try to attack this camp and bomb it. And Faddis was one of the individuals who was, who was involved in the operation to kind of to, just to figure out what these people are up to, just to see what kind of target environment existed there. Zarqawi, as you said, was there and his entire entourage, all, all of these people who became senior leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq was were part of this, this little place, um, you know, in, in 2002. And the decision goes all the way up to the Pentagon, to the National Security Council. Do we attack this camp? Um, you know, do we take it out, um, you know, and, and p- perhaps eliminate a terrorist threat? And the decision was made by Rumsfeld and many others. No, we don't, because we've got this big invasion plan for March of 2003. We don't want to, you know, jump the gun by doing this operation in Iraq, um, you know, maybe tipping off uh, Saddam Hussein to our plans or, or just creating a, a distraction that's not going to help us later on. And so ultimately, the decision is made that we, we will hold our fire. We'll wait till after the invasion of Iraq starts, and then we can take care of this little training camp problem. And so, sure, after after the invasion and in March of 2003, a couple of you know Tomahawk missiles hit this camp. But by that time, it was too late. The guys had scattered. Sarkoog so, was already on his way to Baghdad to, to start what became Al Qaeda in Iraq. But there was this moment where things could have potentially been completely different. Um, but we kind of stayed our hand and waited a little bit, and waited too long, as it turned out.
0: October 27, 2002, American diplomat Lawrence Foley was about to get in his car and drive to his office at the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan. According to Joby Warwick, he was a mid-level official whose job was to arrange financing for clean water projects and business partnerships for Jordanian entrepreneurs. In other words, he was not a senior official in the embassy hierarchy nor was he involved in intelligence or counterterrorism activities. That morning, Foley was fatally shot by a man armed with a handgun equipped with a silencer. The shooter then made a run for a getaway car, waiting a block away. The gunman makes a phone call to someone in northern Iraq. That call was picked up by the eavesdroppers at the National Security Agency were looking for leads on Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda in that part of the world. The gunman was quoted saying, "Inform the Sheikh everything was done properly." While investigating Foley's murder, Jordanian intelligence got a tip about a Libyan veteran of Afghanistan named Salim bin Sweid. He had a Jordanian business partner with whom he operated a women's clothing store. Suwade had been arrested three years prior for entering Jordan with a forged passport. He was suspected of having Al-Qaeda connections and was subsequently kicked out of the country. Now Suwade was back. Suwade and his partner were captured and interrogated. Suwaid was later taken to the scene of Foley's murder and asked to reconstruct the killing. When Suwade was asked why he did it, his response was, quote, I did it for Al-Qaeda and Zarqawi. Curiously, Zarqawi never took public responsibility or credit for the Foley killing, even though he did for hundreds of others, including some of American citizens. The recipient of Suwaid's phone call in northern Iraq was later identified as Muammar Yusuf al-Yagbir, whom Joby Warwick describes as, quote, a known Zarqawi disciple. When he was arrested by Americans in Iraq years later, Al-Yagbir's statements would support a claim that Zarqawi had personally dispatched Suede to Jordan with a $50,000 budget in a single order, fine and kill any Americans. However, Nada Bakos, the CIA analyst who would later become the targeting officer leading the hump for Zarqawi, would call the evidence ambiguous. Quote, we were convinced of Zarqawi's role, analytically. Whether you could put together a criminal case, that's a different story. Ambiguities aside, the allegation that Zarqawi had ordered the assassination of a U.S. diplomat in Jordan was taken seriously. For the Bush administration officials pushing for war and regime change in Iraq, it would bolster the arguments that Zarqawi had ties to both al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. The CIA would later discover that Zarqawi had left the Ansar al-Islam camp and moved to Baghdad ahead of the U.S. invasion in March of 2003. Zarqawi moved into the Sunni areas of Iraq in the summer of 2003, when the American occupation was still in its infancy. He didn't waste any time. August 7, 2003. A car bomb explodes outside the Jordanian embassy in Baghdad. Ten people were killed, including five Iraqi police officers guarding the embassy. Forty others were injured. According to CNN, crowds rushed into the embassy after the explosion, looting parts of it and burning pictures of Jordan King Abdullah II and his father, the late King Hussein. Sarkawi is believed to have been responsible. August 19, 2003. A suicide bomber drove a cement mixer filled with explosives to the Canal Hotel in Baghdad which was serving as the United Nations headquarters in Iraq. The blast killed 22 United Nations officials, including Sergio Vieira de Mello, the UN Special Representative to Iraq. The UN subsequently withdraws all non-essential employees. August 29, 2003. A car bomb placed outside of the Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf explodes, killing more than 100 people. It is a holy shrine to Shia Muslims, which are the majority of the population of Iraq. The suicide bomber in this attack was a Jordanian from Zarqa named Yassin Jarad. He was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's father-in-law. Zarqawi kept recruiting candidates for suicide operations, despite a theologically inconvenient fact pointed out by Joby Warwick. Quote, "...a Quranic commandment that strictly forbids Muslims from taking their own lives." A Jordanian intelligence official told journalist Mary Ann Weaver that the United States elevated Zarqawi's stature, which boosted recruitment for his cause. In the official's words, quote, Your government is creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. But Zarqawi's penchant for violence, mayhem, and death was only just beginning. Before continuing with the story, here is a brief explanation on the major schism in the Islamic religion. There are two major sects in Islam, Sunni and Shia. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, Sunnis are by far the dominant sect. They account for roughly 85-90% to 90% of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims. Shia only account for an estimated 10-13%. The difference between the two sects is a political divide over who was the legitimate successor of the Prophet Muhammad after his death in the year 632 AD. Sunnis and Shias coexist peacefully in many countries, intermarrying and worshipping at the same mosques, but in other countries, the Sunni-Shia divide can be a matter of life and death. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, quote, Shia identity is rooted in victimhood over the killing of Hussein, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson in the 7th century, and a long history of marginalization by the Sunni majority. Islam's dominant sect, shia islam with suspicion and extremist sunnis have portrayed shias as heretics and apostates sunnis are the majority of muslim populations in most countries according to the bbc they are 90 percent or more of the populations of egypt jordan and saudi arabia there are a handful of shia majority nations bahrain iran and iraq According to the BBC, Iran is the country with the largest Shia majority making up nearly 90% of its population. Iraq's Shia majority was oppressed, often violently, by Saddam Hussein and his Sunni minority that controlled Iraq for decades. After he was overthrown, Shia Muslims were free to practice their religion and were given representation in the new Iraqi government. There is a concept in Islam called Takfir which is defined by the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point as, quote, excommunicating or declaring a Muslim an apostate, which is punishable by death. Remember, Zarqawi was a radical Sunni Muslim, as were Osama bin Laden and most of the members of Al-Qaeda. According to the CTC at West Point, quote, al-Zarqawi considered all Shia apostates. Many of his victims were Iraqi Shia Muslims. April 28, 2004 A little more than a year since the invasion and occupation of Iraq, the United States government and military was about to be rocked to its core by a scandal that would tarnish its image and reputation around the world. The Abu Ghraib prison outside of Baghdad was one of the most notorious in Iraq during the rule of Saddam Hussein. Torture and executions were commonplace. In March of 1998, the Iraqi dictator ordered the liquidation of 2,000 prisoners at Abu Ghraib as part of a broader national directive to, quote, clean all the prisons in the country. After the toppling of Saddam's government, the U.S. military took over management of Abu Ghraib and turned it into a military prison. Rules for the treatment of detainees went horribly awry, as prison guards took self-incriminating photographs of themselves and prisoners in degrading, humiliating poses. On April 28th, the investigative news program 60 Minutes 2 aired an explosive story showing the graphic photos of American military personnel abusing detainees at Abu Ghraib. Investigative reporter Seymour Hersh published his own bombshell report on Abu Ghraib in The New Yorker shortly after. Hersh had more photos, including perhaps the one that came to define the scandal in the eyes of the public, an Iraqi man wearing a black robe and hood covering his face, standing on a box, his arms outstretched with cables attached to a finger on both hands. According to the caption in the article, this detainee was told that he would be electrocuted if he fell off the box. Hirsch also had a scoop in that story that no one else did. He had obtained a copy of a 53-page report on the abuses perpetrated at the prison, written by Major General Antonio Taguba. The Taguba report Which has since been made public and is available online, concluded that between October and December of 2003, there were quote, numerous incidents of sadistic, blatant, and wanton criminal abuses were inflicted on several detainees. This systematic and illegal abuse of detainees was intentionally perpetrated by several members of the military police guard force. Taguba also noted that quote, the allegations of abuse were substantiated by detailed witness statements and the discovery of extremely graphic photographic evidence. The photographs triggered national and global outrage. In his memoir, President Bush called the Abu Ghraib scandal the lowest point of his presidency. Donald Rumsfeld offered his resignation after the scandal broke, which President Bush refused to accept. Years later, he would write in his memoir that his biggest mistake had been not forcing the president to accept his resignation at the time. Quote, More than anything else I have failed to do, and even amid my pride in the many important things we did accomplish, I regret that I did not leave at that point. Subsequent investigations by Congress and the media revealed a paper trail of government documents authorizing the use of harsh interrogation tactics at Abu Ghraib and elsewhere as part of the war on terrorism. But it was the appallingly visual aspect of the Abu Ghraib scandal that would become a goldmine for jihadists and insurgents. Here's Washington Post reporter Joby Warwick.
4: So, after 9 11, you have this moment where most countries of the world, including Arab majority countries, Muslim countries, there's a moment of kind of solidarity and of kind of an outpouring of sympathy for the United States, for other countries that have been victimized. and you know, a denunciation of, of the tactics used by Al-Qaeda. You know, that's, it's fairly universal, except for fairly small minorities here and there. But, you know, Abu Ghraib in particular, and Guantanamo as well, become sort of the antidote to that, because here is an opportunity for, for folks like Bin Laden and people like Sarkawi to point to the United States and say, they're not, you know, they're, they're coming after Muslims. This is a, a new crusade, you know, Muslims are the enemy to them they're out to destroy us, they're out to subjugate us and here's your proof look how they're humiliating um, you know good Muslim men including in sexual ways which pushes a lot of buttons for for some of these jihadists and so you've got a, you've got potentially a recruiting tool for these organizations and you've got you know the videos that they can circulate again and again and again to make the point that Americans are the enemy and, and need to be stopped.
0: May 11, 2004, Zarqawi introduces what would come to be known as his trademark to his terrorist operations in Iraq, videotape beheadings published on the internet for the world to see. The MO was consistent. The victim would be wearing an orange jumpsuit resembling the ones worn by prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. He would be posing in front of a black banner for Zarqawi's newest group, Al-Tawid Al-Jihad, which means monotheism and jihad. The first victim was an American named Nicholas Berg. There would be others who met the same grisly death. In his book Black Flags, Joby Warwick writes Since Berg's savage murder, Islamist media were awash and Zarqawi inspired gore. The Jordanians' men carried out dozens of executions, many of them videotaped, including the beheadings of a Bulgarian truck driver, a South Korean translator, an Egyptian contractor. Scores of others would follow, including Americans, Britons, Japanese, Austrians, and Italians. Berg's execution, and the others that followed, would be widely condemned, including in the Arab world. Remember, Zarqawi is doing all of this under the moniker of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. But there were a series of communications that happened before the name change. January 2004. Zarqawi writes a lengthy letter to Osama bin Laden, which is to be delivered by a Pakistani Al Qaeda courier named Hassan Ghul. At the time of Ghul's arrest in Kurdish controlled northern Iraq, he had in his possession two CDs worth of documents and a notebook filled with names and phone numbers. They also found the Zarqawi letter, which was translated and published online by the State Department. In it, Zarqawi brags of having completed 25 operations against Shias, American soldiers, Iraqi police, and coalition forces. He calls Americans, quote, the most cowardly of God's creatures. He describes the Kurds as, quote, a thorn whose time to be clipped has yet to come. He says the Shia, quote, have declared a secret war against the people of Islam. According to Bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen, Zarqawi argues to Bin Laden in the letter, The way for Al Qaeda to prosper in Iraq was to position itself as the protectors of Sunnis in a civil war with the Shia that Al Qaeda itself would provoke. Bin Laden had shown no interest in Zarqawi's proposed war against the Shias of Iraq, in spite of whatever personal views against Shias he may have held. There was also an element of self-interest to consider. Many Al-Qaeda leaders, as well as members of Bin Laden's family, were living in Iran, most of them under house arrest. So Bin Laden probably didn't want to antagonize their hosts by going on a Shia killing spree. It's also worth noting that Bin Laden's Syrian mother is an Alawite, which is a branch of Shia Islam. October 2004 A statement is posted to the website used by a militant Islamic group in Iraq. It reads, We announce that Taweed and Jihad, its prince and its soldiers, have pledged allegiance to the leader of the Mujahideen, Osama bin Laden. The release of the statement is timed to coincide with the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. Zarqawi also formally changes his organization's name to Al-Qaeda in Iraq. December 16, 2004 Osama bin Laden responds in an audio tape later aired by Al Jazeera. In it, he names Zarqawi as leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq and calls for attacks on any Iraqis who cooperate with the Americans. He also praises the December 6, 2004 attack on the U.S. consulate in his former hometown of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia five consular employees were killed, and four others were injured. This attack was attributed to a Saudi group with ties to Al Qaeda. From a counter-terrorism perspective, this meant that Bin Laden was aware of the attack in Jeddah and had been able to get his audio recorded statement out within 10 days of the attack. But regardless of Bin Laden's wishes, sarqawi had much bigger plans of stirring up a sectarian hornet's nest an attempt to trigger a full-blown civil war. And to do so, he was willing to kill indiscriminately. September 14, 2005 An audio recording purportedly from Zarqawi is published online, in which he announces a declaration of, quote, all-out war against Iraq's Shia population. November 9, 2005 Three bombs explode at three different hotels in Amman, Jordan, within a window of a few minutes. Sixty people were killed, and 115 were injured. All three hotels were known to be frequented by Westerners, but employed many Jordanians. There were four suicide bombers used in this attack, all of them Iraqis. One of them survived. The majority of casualties, 38, were attending a wedding reception inside a ballroom at the Radisson Hotel. Twenty-seven friends and relatives of the bride and groom were killed in the attack, including both their father's and the bride's mother. The husband and wife duo of Hussein Al Shamari and Sajida Mubarak Atros Al Rashawi were equipped with suicide vests, but her vest failed to detonate and she fled the scene amidst the chaos after her husband blew himself up. She was later captured by Jordanian authorities and made to record a televised confession while wearing her suicide vest. Al-Qaeda in Iraq would claim responsibility for the attacks. The hotel bombings helped turn Jordanian public opinion against Zarqawi and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. February 22, 2006 Just before 7 a.m., a group of a dozen men in paramilitary garb entered the Golden Mosque in Samara, Iraq. They handcuffed four guards who were inside, sleeping. They placed a bomb in the dome and detonated it. The Golden Mosque is sacred to Shia Muslims. According to the New York Times, it is, quote, One of four major Shiite shrines in Iraq, and two of the 12 imams revered by mainstream Shiites are buried in it. The mosque's iconic Golden Dome was destroyed, but no one was killed. The bombing happened after two days' worth of attacks which killed dozens of Iraqi Shias. According to the New York Times, Shia militias responded by firing rocket-propelled grenades and machine guns at Sunni mosques and Iraqi soldiers. By the end of the day, mobs had attacked 27 Sunni mosques in Baghdad alone killed three imams and kidnapped a fourth. In Basra, two Sunni mosques were destroyed, and one imam was killed. A declassified briefing from the Defense Intelligence Agency called Zarqawi, quote, the key face of jihad in Iraq. The same briefing also notes that he has, quote, executed more high-profile attacks in Iraq than Osama bin Laden has worldwide, and that he has, quote, capability and intent to conduct operations outside of Iraq. The backlash against jihadists in general and al-Qaeda by association meant that the organization's appeal and popularity were declining. During a counter-terrorism operation in Iraq at some point in 2005, the United States obtained a letter from Ayman al-Zawahiri to Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. The letter was dated July 9th but was made public by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on October 11th, after assurances that no ongoing military or intelligence operations would be affected by making it public. Quote, We are in a battle, and that more than half of this battle is taking place in the battlefield of the media, Zawahiri writes, and that we are in a media battle in a race for the hearts and minds of our Ummah. Zawahiri criticizes Zarqawi's online executions, writing, quote, Among the things which the feelings of the Muslim populace who love and support you will never find palatable, also, are the scenes of slaughtering the hostages. You shouldn't be deceived by the praise of some of the zealous young men and their description of you as the sheikh of the slaughterers, etc., they do not express the general view of the admirer and the supporter of the resistance in Iraq, and a view in particular by the favor and blessing of God. Zawahiri also criticizes Arqawi's attacks on Shias. Quote, Is the opening of another front now in addition to the front against the Americans and the government a wise decision? Or does this conflict with the Shia lift the burden from the Americans by diverting the Mujahideen to the Shia, while the Americans continue to control matters from afar. And if the attacks on Shia leaders were necessary to put a stop to their plans, then why were there attacks on ordinary Shia? Al-Qaeda spokesman Adam Gaddan would privately recommend that Bin Laden cut ties with Al-Qaeda in Iraq because of its propensity for sectarian violence. June 7, 2006 Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's reign of murder, violence, and chaos is about to come to an end. According to Joby Warwick's book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, the first break in the path that would eventually lead to Zarqawi himself came a few months earlier, when Jordanians arrested a corrupt Iraqi border guard named Zaid al-Karbouli. He was also on the payroll of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which offered him a better salary and perks than its official government job. Once he sat down for an interrogation with Jordanian officials, he told them pretty much everything he knew, especially what he knew and saw about Zarqawi's network from his vantage point at the border. One of Al-Karbuli's responsibilities was to oversee incoming supplies for Zarqawi's bomb factories in Iraq. Warwick writes, quote, A job that gave him broad familiarity with terrorist cells around the country. April 8th, 2006 Delta Force operators from U.S. General Stanley McChrystal's Task Force 626 raided a terrorist safehouse and a farmhouse in the Iraqi village of Yusufiya. Six men were killed. Another 17 were captured alive and taken back to Baghdad for interrogation. While going through the trove of evidence collected from the two sites for intelligence exploitation, they find a promising lead—a videotape which contained the raw outtakes of Zarkawi's propaganda clips. As Joby Warwick writes, quote, "The occupants of the Yusufia house, whoever they were, were senior enough to own the raw outtakes from Zarkawi's propaganda reel." The military would later release what might be called bloopers from this video to undermine Zarqawi's image. McChrystal also convinced the White House to lower the reward money offered for Zarqawi from $25 million, the same amount as offered for Osama bin Laden himself, to $5 million. Quoting Joby Warwick, The symbolic demotion would do untold damage to Zarqawi's towering ego, he reasoned. May 2006 Jordanian intelligence gives their American counterparts some interesting information about one of the men captured during the Yusuf VIA raid the previous month. The U.S. interrogation of the Iraqi men had stalled, but they would now have a better idea of who they were dealing with. The Iraqi man's travel record showed that he made several suspicious trips to Amman, Jordan around the time of the hotel bombings the previous November. And there were also possible links between him and the family of Sajida al-Rashawi, the Iraqi suicide bomber whose vest failed to detonate at the Radisson Hotel in Amman. Armed with this evidence, interrogators approached the Iraqi man and laid it all out for him in clear terms. Tell us what you know or we will turn you over to the Jordanians for prosecution. That was the breakthrough. In his eight-page typed confession, the man gave up a significant lead on Zarqawi, the name of his spiritual advisor. Sheikh Abd al-Rahman was a young Iraqi imam who lived in Baghdad with his family. More importantly, he met with Zarqawi every seven to ten days. In other words, find the spiritual advisor and they would find Zarqawi. When they showed a surveillance photograph of the imam to Iraqi border official turned informant, Zaid al-Karbouli, he told them that the man was known within the al-Qaeda in Iraq organization, but under a fake name, and that he was sure that the cleric in the photographs was him. For the next two weeks, drones would follow the imam's car on its routine trips around Baghdad, hoping it would lead them to Zarqawi. June 7, 2006 The surveillance team watching the imam on drone cameras notice a deviation from his usual routine. His car stops on the on-ramp to get on Baghdad's main freeway. Once here, the imam is picked up by a small blue truck following behind. The drone kept on the truck's trail as it drove out into the Iraqi countryside, heading to the city of Bakuba. It's worth noting that earlier, Jordan's top counterterrorism official had told his American counterpart that Bakuba was his best guess as to where Zarkawi might be hiding. Once in Bakuba, the Sheikh made another car switch, this time getting into a white pickup, before heading north to a house in a village called Habib, several miles outside of Bakuba. It was almost 5pm local time. The drone had been tailing the Imam for about five hours by this point. A man dressed in black emerges from the building and leads the Imam inside. General McChrystal, watching the drone camera, immediately recognizes him as Zarqawi. A Delta Force team was on standby in Baghdad, but one of their helicopters was having engine problems. The clock kept ticking. What if Zarqawi were to get away while they waited for the helicopter to be fixed? At the same time two F-16 fighter jets were patrolling the skies over Baghdad ready to provide air cover for troops on the ground on short notice. One of them receives coordinates for the village of Habib which he can get to in five minutes. General McChrystal had wanted to capture Zarqawi alive and was 80 to 90 percent certain that the man in black captured on the drone's camera was him. But given the circumstances He would not have the luxury of waiting for the helicopter. McChrystal gives the order to bomb the house. At around 6 p.m. local time, the F-16 pilot gets the order. It takes him two passes to destroy the target. Delta Force arrives at the house by helicopter about 20 minutes later. They get there just as Iraqi police were loading a stretcher into an ambulance. On that stretcher was the gravely wounded Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. When he saw he was surrounded by Americans, he tried to make a run for it, but was physically held down. According to Joby Warwick, an autopsy concluded that, Zarkawi had only minutes to live in any case, his lungs and other internal organs having been crushed by the intense pressure wave from the exploding bomb. A medic at the scene noted that Zarkawi's carotid artery had already collapsed from internal bleeding and blood seeped from his nose and ears as he wheezed through a few last breaths. Zarqawi died at 7.04 p.m. local time. His body was brought back to Balad Air Base to make a positive identification using DNA. McChrystal ordered a series of raids throughout Iraq to preempt any potential retaliatory attacks by al-Qaeda in Iraq. Zarqawi's death was announced the next day. While there were celebrations in Amman, Zarqa was another matter where protests broke out in what had been Zarqawi's hometown. The man was dead, but his murderous, nightmarish vision for an Islamic caliphate would live on. By this point, however, terror attacks are not limited to war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. March 11, 2004. 10 bombs are detonated on 4 trains at 3 Madrid area train stations during the height of the morning commute, killing 193 people and injuring more than 1,800 others. It was the deadliest terrorist attack on European soil in history, surpassing the bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. A group claiming responsibility for the attacks issued three communiques in the name of Al-Qaeda, The attacks take place just three days before Spain's national elections. Outgoing Spanish Prime Minister José María Aznar and his government blamed the Basque separatist group ETA for the attacks, known by its Basque acronym ETA. The group, which disbanded in 2018, killed more than 800 people in Spain over the course of six decades, according to the New York Times. Why did Aznar blame ETA? Perhaps he did it for political reasons. The conservative prime minister had pledged to serve only two terms, so he was not on the ballot. But he had supported George W. Bush's war in Iraq and sent 1,400 Spanish soldiers into the country, a move that was opposed by as many as 90% of Spaniards. Perhaps he did it because of familiarity. Asnar survived the car bombing in 1995 that was attributed to ETA. Perhaps it was a combination of both. All political parties suspended campaigning during the final days between the bombing and the elections. Opposition groups began to accuse Asnar and his government of being less than transparent about who was behind the attacks, culminating with a series of nationwide mass protests on the streets on March 12th. On March 13th, A videotape made by a man speaking Arabic with a Moroccan accent claimed responsibility for the attacks on behalf of Al-Qaeda. That same day, five people were arrested within 60 hours of the bombings, three Moroccans and two Indians. Remember the geography of the region. Morocco is directly across the Mediterranean Sea from Spain, separated only by about nine miles at its narrowest points in the Strait of Gibraltar. There are ferry routes that make the trip between the two countries, and there is a large expat and immigrant Moroccan community in Spain. Spain's socialist party is swept into power in the election. Aznar's successor, José Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, subsequently orders the removal of Spain's 1,400 troops from Iraq. They are out of the country by May of 2004. According to British newspaper The Guardian, quote, It was also the first example of a single terrorist attack having a direct effect on the outcome of an election in a leading Western country. Two years later, a report by a Spanish prosecutor concluded that the attacks were inspired by a Bin Laden audio message from October 19, 2003, which was initially aired on Al Jazeera. Here's the key line in that message in which he threatens the United States coalition partners in Iraq. Let the unjust ones know that we maintain our right to reply at the appropriate time and place to all the states that are taking part in this unjust war, particularly Britain, Spain, Australia, Poland, Japan, and Italy. The Islamic world states that are taking part in this war, particularly the Gulf states, mainly Kuwait, the land base for the Crusader forces, will not be excluded from this. In 2007, 21 Islamic militants were convicted in connection with the March 11th bombings. Six others were acquitted. According to a report in the British newspaper The Independent, quote, While the bombers may have been inspired by bin Laden, a two-year investigation into the attacks has found no evidence that al-Qaeda helped plan, finance, or carry out the bombings, or even knew about them in advance. Regardless of the lack of connection to Al-Qaeda, the attack in Spain may have inspired Bin Laden to try intervening in another election later that same year. 2004 was the first US presidential election after 9-11. President Bush was running for a second term, in part, on his handling of the War on Terrorism. From a crowded field of Democrats representing all parts of their party's ideological spectrum, Senator John Kerry emerged as the party's nominee. A long-standing member of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Kerry had voted in favor of the war resolution in 2002. His Senate colleague, hawkish centrist Joe Lieberman, who had been Al Gore's running mate just four years earlier, ran unapologetically in support of the war, which was slowly turning sour in the minds of many Americans. Much of the Democratic base was unhappy with the war, and that so many of their would-be candidates voted for it. However, it was former Vermont Governor Howard Dean's energizing, unapologetically liberal anti-war candidacy and his prolific fundraising ability, which changed the dynamic of the presidential primary. He seized on the issue of his opposition to the war and found political pay dirt. While addressing the Democratic National Committee just before the Iraq war was about to start, Dean said, quote, What I want to know is why in the world the Democratic Party leadership is supporting the president's unilateral attack on Iraq. What I want to know is why are Democratic Party leaders supporting tax cuts? I'm Howard Dean, and I'm here to represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. Dean was the frontrunner for a period of 2003, as the party was heading into the presidential primaries beginning in January of 2004. Dean's surging popularity and fundraising forced his party to the left in its opposition to the war. Even as elected officials who had voted for it were in the race and tried to rationalize their votes to the party's activist base. Dean flamed out after a disappointing third place finish in Iowa, punctuated by an overenthusiastic speech which ended with a highly parodied scream that became fodder for late night comedians. It would come to be known as the I Have a Scream speech. John Kerry would eventually emerge as the Democratic nominee, with John Edwards as his running mate. Both men had voted for the Iraq War Resolution in the United States Senate. October 29, 2004 Five days before Election Day, Osama bin Laden delivered the October surprise of that cycle. A videotaped statement delivered to Al Jazeera's office in Pakistan, it was the first time in three years that the Al-Qaeda leader had been seen in person. Bin Laden directly addresses the people of the United States, accepting responsibility for 9-11 and condemning the Bush administration. He concludes the message saying, quote, I tell you in truth that your security is not in the hands of Kerry, nor Bush, nor Al-Qaeda. No, your security is in your own hands and every state that doesn't play with our security has automatically guaranteed its own security." Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry later said that 9-11 was the deciding issue of that election, and the Bin Laden video halted, then reversed his political momentum going into the final stretch of the race. November 2, 2004 George W. Bush is re-elected to a second term after winning a 286-251 victory in the Electoral College with a popular vote margin of about 3 million votes. The key issues on voters' minds in that election were terrorism and Iraq, which combined for 34% in a CNN exit poll. The majority of voters who considered them the most important issues of the day voted for President Bush over Senator Kerry. One of the few bright spots for Democrats during that cycle was Barack Obama's election to the United States Senate, coming off a star-making speech he delivered at that year's Democratic Convention. July 7, 2005. Three bombs detonate within a four-minute window on three separate trains on the London Underground. The attacks begin at 8.50 a.m. local time, during the height of the morning rush hour commute. 39 people are killed on the three trains. At 9.47 a.m., a a fourth bomb detonates on a double-decker bus, killing another 13 people. The attacks kill 52 and wound 700 others. Five days after the attacks, a dozen unexploded car bombs were discovered inside a parked car left at a North London train station. Police were able to close the station and detonate the bombs in a controlled explosion. It was subsequently discovered that Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the ringleader of the four suicide bombers who carried out the attacks, had been under surveillance by British intelligence. But the MI5 officers assigned to investigate him were moved to another counter-terrorism operation. Three of the four suicide bombers were sons of Pakistani immigrants born in the United Kingdom. The fourth was a Jamaican immigrant who converted to Islam. The July 7th bombings raised concerns about the risks of homegrown radicalization in the West, a problem that would continue to grow in the years ahead. A martyr video recorded by Muhammad Sadiq Khan would air on Al-Jazeera on September 1st. In it, he refers to Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi as, quote, the prophets, the messengers, the martyrs, and today's heroes whom he professes to love. Five years after 9-11 and three years after Operation Iraqi Freedom, American voters were beginning to turn against the country's wars, particularly the war in Iraq. Because of the unpopularity of the Iraq War, as well as a series of congressional ethics and corruption scandals, and the Bush administration's mishandling of Hurricane Katrina, Republicans lost their majorities in the House and Senate during the 2006 midterm elections. Donald Rumsfeld again offered his resignation as Secretary of Defense. This time, President Bush accepted it. His biographer, former Washington Post reporter Bradley Graham, wrote that Rumsfeld's mismanagement of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq made him, quote, the personification of the arrogance and misjudgments of the Bush administration. Rumsfeld was replaced by Robert Gates who had previously served as George H.W. Bush's CIA director during the final two years of his presidency. With President Bush winding down his second and final term, the question of who would succeed him began in earnest in 2007. Normally, a term-limited president would be replaced on the ballot by his vice president, who would be running for a de facto third term. At the time, the last vice president to succeed his former boss, was George Herbert Walker Bush. You'll recall he was elected in 1988 after serving two terms as Vice President. But 2007 would be an exception to that rule. Dick Cheney had no interest in running for the top job. Therefore, it would be a free-for-all in both parties, as anyone with delusions of presidential grandeur threw their names into the race. In all, 11 Republicans and 9 Democrats ran in the respective party primaries from 2007 to 2008. The Republican primary was largely a three-man race between Senator John McCain and Governors Mitt Romney and Mike Huckabee. McCain, who was one of the GOP's foreign policy and national security heavy hitters, finished second to George W. Bush in the 2000 Republican primary. He wound up winning his party's nomination in 2008. There were nine candidates running for the Democratic nomination, but realistically it was a two-person race between Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Democratic voters would have to choose between two history-making candidates. The first African-American or the first female presidential nominee by a major party in American history. Many of the anti-war liberals who had gravitated toward Howard Dean's message four years earlier were drawn to Senator Obama's message. His speech opposing the Iraq war nearly five years earlier offered a sharp contrast to more experienced politicians who were in the race. Obama's fellow senators John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and Chris Dodd were also running for president and they all voted in favor of the Iraq War Resolution in October of 2002. Congressman Dennis Kucinich voted against the war in the House and was farther to the left in the political spectrum than Senator Obama, but he never got any traction in the primaries. Because of the Democratic Party's system of proportionately allocating delegates in each race, Obama did not secure his party's nomination until after the final primaries in June of 2008. The collapse of Lehman Brothers and the housing market in September of 2008 shifted the underlying dynamics of the campaign to being about the unfolding economic crisis and which candidate was better prepared to deal with it. But during the second presidential debate that fall, audience member Katie Hamm asked the candidates a question about Pakistan. Listen to then-Senator Obama's response.
1: Should the United States respect Pakistani sovereignty and not pursue al Qaeda terrorists who maintain bases there? Or should we ignore their borders and pursue our enemies, like we did in Cambodia during the
2: Vietnam War?
5: Katie, it's a terrific question. And we have a difficult situation in Pakistan. Uh, I believe that part of the reason we have a difficult situation is because we made a bad judgment going into Iraq in the first place when we hadn't finished the job of hunting down bin Laden and crushing al Qaeda. So what happened was we got distracted, we diverted resources, and ultimately bin Laden escaped, set up base camps in the mountains of Pakistan in the northwest provinces there. They are now raiding our troops in Afghanistan, destabilizing the situation. They're stronger now than at any time since 2001. And that's why I think it's so important for us to reverse course, because that's the central front on terrorism. They are plotting to kill Americans right now. As Secretary Gates, uh, uh, the Defense Secretary said, the war against terrorism began in that region, and that's where it will end. So part of the reason I think it's so important for us to end the war in Iraq is to be able to get more troops into Afghanistan, put more pressure on the Afghan government to do what it needs to do, eliminate some of the drug trafficking that's funding terrorism. But I do believe that we have to change our policies with Pakistan. We can't coddle, uh, as we did, a dictator, give him billions of dollars, and then he's making peace treaties with the Taliban and militants. What I've said is we're going to encourage democracy in Pakistan, expand uh, our non-military aid to Pakistan so that they have more of a stake in working with us, but insisting that they go after these militants. And if we have Osama bin Laden in our sights and the Pakistani government is unable or unwilling to take them out, then I think that we have to act. And we will take them out. We will kill bin Laden. We will crush al Qaeda. That has to be our biggest national security priority. January 20th, 2009. So help me God.
3: Congratulations, Mr. President.
0: Barack Hussein Obama is sworn into office as the 44th President of the United States. At 47 years old, he is the youngest American president since John F. Kennedy. He is also the first African American elected to the nation's highest office. Having been elected at the start of what came to be known as the Great Recession, Obama was facing the most challenging economic climate in the country since Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sworn into office in 1933. During the first full month of Obama's presidency, the American economy lost 651,000 jobs, the biggest one-month loss since 1950. The unemployment rate went up to 8.1%, the highest rate since 1983. The U.S. economy lost a cumulative total of 4.4 million jobs in the 12-month period beginning in January of 2008. According to CNN, that figure is almost equal to the combined number of jobs in Georgia, Michigan, and North Carolina at the end of 2007. During the same period, the unemployment rate increased by 3.3%. Although the economy would take up much of President Obama's attention at the start of his presidency, he also had a full plate of foreign and domestic issues to deal with. He had asked Robert Gates, President Bush's Secretary of Defense, to stay in his post. He had picked his campaign rivals Hillary Clinton to be his Secretary of State and Joe Biden to be his Vice President. A big part of Secretary Clinton's job would be repairing foreign alliances which had been tested or strained because of President Bush's decision to invade Iraq. Vice President Joe Biden had served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for decades, was well-versed on international issues, and knew many foreign leaders. But President Obama had not forgotten about Osama bin Laden. In his memoir, Obama's first CIA director, Leon Panetta, wrote that when he arrived at Langley in early 2009, quote, "...the last reliable information we had of bin Laden was during the battle for Tora Bora. We had a few reports of him in Afghanistan's Kunar province in mid-2002, and then the trail went cold, so cold, in fact, that the Bush administration, once enthralled by the hunt, Reversed itself entirely and worked to downplay any expectations. This meant that it had been about seven years since the agency had received reports of any credible bin Laden sightings. In June of 2009, CIA Director Leon Panetta went to the White House with a counterterrorism team to brief President Obama on the agency's revamped hunt for Osama bin Laden. Panetta writes in his memoir, quote, At that point, we were pursuing three principal lines of effort. We were analyzing bin Laden's media communications, looking for members of his family, and trying to penetrate his courier network. We also operated under the assumption that bin Laden was not moving around, but rather had to hold up somewhere. He was, after all, one of the most recognizable people on Earth with a bounty on his head. He would, we speculated, flee if he believed he was in danger, but otherwise he would probably remain in whatever safe location he had secured. According to then White House counterterrorism advisor John Brennan, President Obama sent Panetta a memo directing the CIA to produce, quote, a detailed operational plan, for locating and bringing to justice Osama bin Laden. The agency would have 30 days to put it together. One possible lead that the agency hoped to exploit was Osama bin Laden's third son Saad. He had been under house arrest in Iran for a time, but had managed to escape. The agency tracked him to Pakistan in the hopes that he would lead them to his father. Let's go back to June of 2008. According to Kathy Scott-Clark and Adrian Levy's book The Exile, many of Osama Bin Laden's relatives, who had been under house arrest in Iran, were moved to a detention facility in Yazd, a historic city in central Iran. They were housed in a villa, which they were not allowed to leave. As they explored the property, they noticed that there were no security cameras at the rear and the only thing between them and freedom was a low wall. At that point, they had heard news reports that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four other defendants would go on trial for their roles in the 9-11 attacks, and that the death penalty was on the table. KSM was quoted saying he welcomed the death penalty. However, Scott Clark and Levy noted, quote, "...Osama's family had no such wishes." Saad bin Laden, who was 29 at the time and as the oldest male would be considered the head of the household, volunteered to go over the wall. Scott Clark and Levy described him as autistic. Quote, his siblings shook their heads in disbelief. Saad, who couldn't even tie his own shoelaces, would never make it out. In spite of his family's skepticism, Saad's mind was made up. That night, he played games with his children and waited for them and his wife to fall asleep. Scott Clark and Levy write, quote, In the early hours, when he was sure everyone was asleep, he kissed his sleeping children, climbed out of a window, and slipped over the wall into the desert night. He would rescue them all. Saad got on a bus headed to Zahidan, a city located in Balochistan, near Iran's border with Afghanistan and Pakistan. Why there? Because he had been told the Taliban still had power and influence there. And because members of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's network still lived there. Remember, KSM was a balochi with numerous ties in the region. During their years of house arrest in Iran with their father's lieutenant, Saif al-Adil, Osama's sons had been made to memorize names and details of contacts in case they ever got out. As Scott Clark and Levy wrote, quote, Saad could not recall a single telephone number. By June of 2009, Saad bin Laden, traveling only with a small suitcase and his laptop, had made his way to Pakistan's tribal areas through a combination of walking and hitching rides. He had no luck finding his father, and when he asked for help, frightened locals would turn him away. With the American drone campaign now in full force, Nobody wanted to be associated with a son of Osama bin Laden. Saad eventually made his way to a village in North Waziristan, where he went to a shop that was a distributor for videos produced by Al-Qaeda's media wing, known as Al-Sahab. Someone eventually got word to Saad's brother-in-law, Dawood, who was married to his sister Khadija. He had not seen him since 2002. Osama had married Khadija to Daoud when she was only 12. Daoud's real name was Abu Abdallah al-Halabi. He was a Saudi al-Qaeda fighter in Afghanistan. Khadija bin Laden died in 2007 while giving birth to twins in Pakistan's remote tribal regions. Daoud himself would later be killed during a CIA drone strike. Their four orphaned children were sent to live with their grandfather, Osama, at an unknown location. Daoud secretly sent word to Osama that Saad was alive and well. Osama's response to the news, according to Scott Clark and Levy, was, quote, The instruction that came back was perfunctory. Saad should stay put, working in the shop and pretending to be deaf and mute. Knowing his son's mental proclivities and his loose lips... Osama instructed Daoud to keep a close eye on him. He could not afford to have Saad come until someone had thoroughly checked out if he had been tracked or bugged. July 17, 2009 Several members of Al-Qaeda gathered at a compound in North Waziristan. It belonged to Maulana Abdul-Majid, who is described by Scott Clark and Levy as quote, an influential Islamist cleric. He had run afoul of the Pakistani government for his alleged ties to the Pakistani Taliban. Just after 10 a.m., 10 drone-fired missiles hit the compound. It was the 28th drone strike of that year, during which at least six people were killed and another four seriously wounded. One of the dead was Saad bin Laden. According to Scott Clark and Levy, Saad was not the target of the drone strike. In their words, quote, he had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. As his father had instructed, Saad bin Laden had been working in the al-Sahab media archive, filing tapes. He had been staying at a house near a village monitored by Pashtun al-Qaeda supporters, who had all been warned of who he was and his unreliability. Quoting Scott Clark and Levy's book, The Exile*. When he had tried to engage any of them in conversation about taking up an operational position in Al-Qaeda, they had gently rebuffed him. Frustrated, he had befriended a visiting Al-Qaeda commander who was unaware of his vulnerability. Flattered to receive attention from a genuine bin Laden, the commander had agreed to take Saad to Maulana Abdul-Majid's lunch. By the time anyone realized he was missing, it was too late. Saad bin Laden's unintentional death during a drone strike cut off a potential path which might have led the CIA to Osama himself. A few months later, the agency received another very promising lead, but this one would result in one of the darkest days in the history of the CIA. In the fall of 2009, the CIA's counter Center briefed Director Leon Panetta about a Jordanian doctor named Humam al-Balawi. He had somehow managed to infiltrate the upper ranks of Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. Not only that, but he was also offering to help the agency find Ayman al-Zawahiri, Osama bin Laden's top deputy. This is how Leon Panetta described al-Balawi in his memoir. Quote. Balawi had been a minor celebrity of the jihadist underground, writing under an assumed name and posting internet pieces that encouraged martyrs and generally railed at the West. Jordanian officials tolerated it for a time, but when Balawi seemed to drift from commentary toward possible action, they arrested him and subjected him to a rough interrogation at the kingdom's infamous security headquarters. Joby Warwick is a national security reporter at the Washington Post. He is also the author of the book, The Triple Agent, the Al-Qaeda mole who infiltrated the CIA.
4: So Balawi is a is one of the most interesting characters um, in all my time of looking at, at the jihadist movement, looking at individuals. He's, he's really striking for a couple of reasons. One is he, he doesn't take a traditional path to jihad. He's someone who was educated. He's a medical doctor, so he's got advanced degrees, uh, very bright, very well-traveled, but he becomes radicalized because of things he sees around him. He's, he's, you know, eyewitness to the, you know, attacks of, you know, the Israelis fighting the, 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 the Palestinians in Gaza, in particular. In 2008, he watches, you know, the war that breaks out between those two groups, and he's horrified by the, the, the casualties on the Palestinian side. He's a, he's a doctor, he's a pediatrician. So he ends up sort of treating some of those, those injured and becomes, you know, very radicalized just because of, of what he sees in the world. And rather than initially, rather than going out and, and you know, joining a group and, and, you know, going to a foreign country to, to fight, he decides that his contribution will be online. So it creates an internet persona Uh, You know, a a name for himself, a fake identity for himself. And then he starts to create content. And and a lot of it's like very slickly packaged video, you know, sort of um, uh, attacking what the Americans are doing in Iraq, attacking U.S. policy, that's supporting Israel. And he becomes, you know, very prolific, you know, in creating this content, putting it out on the Internet, on channels that that uh, jihadists watch. And he develops an international following. And so it becomes his, his persona, this Khorasani character that he creates, becomes you know very very popular while he's working a day job as a pediatrician and nobody knows who he is. And so this is the background of, of this young man who then gets discovered. The Jordanians uh, arrest him, uh put him in jail, uh, you know, interrogate him and essentially flip him or think they do they convince him to become an informant for them and as he's being uh flipped um there's this opportunity that is is seized upon to potentially use him in a bigger way he's a medical doctor he's potentially someone who could go someplace and 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 do work for the you know for the jordanians or for the u.s intelligence agencies to spy you know for them to collect information on them because of his access as a doctor and so this very unlikely plan develops in which Baloui is sent by the Jordanians with American money to the to the, the tribal areas of, of Western Pakistan with the goal of infiltrating the Taliban and seeing if he could get close to Al-Qaeda figures. And if so, you know, who knows what would happen? But here's a potential avenue for, for, for us to try to get closer to, to Taliban leadership and hopefully to Al-Qaeda leadership. Mm-hmm. And if I can, I'll just continue with the story. What the amazing thing that happens is once he gets into that environment, once he arrives in Pakistan, where he really doesn't know anybody, where chances of success are, or even survival are quite small, he becomes very successful right away. He starts making connections within the Taliban. He starts sending information to the Jordanians and thus to the Americans, showing that he's getting very, very close to, to senior leaders of the Taliban. He even begins to meet members of al-Qaeda. And he's sending back detailed accounts and video and medical descriptions showing that he actually is in the presence of Al Qaeda figures, and the Americans are getting very excited because this is as close. This is 2009, so you know, years before we we killed Bin Laden, this is as close as we've ever gotten to, to getting to the senior leadership of Al Qaeda and even knowing where they are. And so, a plan is developed in 2009 to uh, for this for the Americans to meet with Bali for the first time to find out what he knows, to give him equipment, to give him instructions and potentially set up what they hoped would be you know, a, a major strike against uh, you know, top leadership of Al Qaeda. So this was the plan that was being developed in 2009.
0: First, some background information on Balawi. He was of Palestinian background, whose family became refugees during the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. They ultimately wound up settling in Kuwait, in 1991, they were made refugees again when the Kuwaiti government expelled the Palestinian community living in the country after it was liberated from Iraqi occupation. Balawi would grow up in Jordan before earning his medical degree in Istanbul and marrying a Turkish woman. He returned to Jordan where he took a job delivering medical aid at the Marka refugee camp. Remember, Balawi is a physician by profession he is sworn to do no harm. How does he reconcile this with his decision to become a jihadist? Joby Warwick explains.
4: As I mentioned, Bowie is a, a kind of a, a very unique figure. So he is he is a doctor in in, in the sense he has taken the Hippocratic oath, but it, I think he sees his real calling as as sort of the sort of the bigger calling for his life, is is you know striking a blow for jihad. He truly believes his stuff. Um there's a, a moment of I think of mixed feelings or indecisions that creep in as he starts to take on his mission. He's, he's not sure that he's really all in on this. If he's well, willing to uh, sacrifice his own life, which he ultimately does uh, and, you know, give up his family and his children. He has two girls that he, that he loves. Um, but he ultimately decides that his, his, his real purpose on life in life was to just to strike a blow against Jordan and against the CIA. And so this is the decision that leads him uh, to, to, to set up a meeting with, with Americans, to travel to Afghanistan, to meet with them at a secret CIA base.
0: December 30th, 2009. Balawi has a meeting arranged to meet with CIA officers in Afghanistan. It's set to take place at a U.S. military base in Coast, known as Forward Operating Base Chapman. FOB Chapman was named after U.S. Army Sergeant Nathan Ross Chapman a Special Forces soldier who was assigned to a CIA squad known as Team Hotel in the aftermath of 9-11. Chapman served as Team Hotel's communications specialist. January 4, 2002 Chapman was riding in the bed of a pickup driving through coast when the pickup came under fire. Chapman was hit by multiple rounds and would become the first US military casualty killed by enemy fire in the war in Afghanistan. Nearly seven years later, Balawi was riding in the backseat of a car as it pulled into FOB Chapman. The driver was an Afghan special forces officer who was part of a local military attachment hired to protect the base. He had picked up Balawi in Pakistan and drove him across the border to the base, switching cars along the way as a security precaution. The car passed through three checkpoints, before arriving at its final destination on the base. Unbeknownst to anyone, Balawi was carrying 30 pounds of metal and C4 explosives strapped to his chest. Balawi was arriving a day later than originally expected because the Taliban had set up multiple sessions for Balawi to film martyrdom propaganda videos. By the time the video shoot finished, the border checkpoint had closed for the night so he would have to wait until the next day to travel into Afghanistan. When the car pulled into the base, 16 people were waiting for Balawi's arrival. One of them was Captain Sharif Ali bin Zaid Al-Oun, who was Balawi's handler in Jordanian intelligence. He was a 10-year veteran of the department and was also a cousin of Jordan's King Abdullah. Balawi gets out of the car. With a detonator in his right hand. He begins to softly mouth in Arabic the words, La ilaha illa Allah. There is no God but God. By now, the welcoming party is becoming alarmed. Some men have even drawn their weapons. Balawi activates the detonator. The explosion lifted the car into the air, sending metal fragments in every direction, tearing through human tissue. According to Joby Warwick, the driver and the five officers closest to Balawi, with an unobstructed view, were killed outright. Among them was Balawi's Jordanian handler, Captain Ali bin Zaid. The eleven others who were present, standing on the far side of the car that brought Balawi to the base, were hit by shrapnel from the explosion, which passed over, under, and sometimes through the car. They suffered injuries varying in severity. Nine people were killed that day, seven CIA officers, along with Balawi's Afghan driver and his Jordanian handler. It was the second deadliest day in the history of the CIA, after the 1983 attack on the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. In his memoir, then-CIA director Leon Panetta wrote, We had been so excited by the prospect of inserting an agent into the highest ranks of our enemy that we let down our guard. Treated as a visiting dignitary rather than as a possible attacker, Balawi unsearched was waved through to the inner compound. Panetta would later go to Dover Air Force Base to welcome home the bodies of the agency's fallen officers and to meet with their families. He also went to Bethesda Naval Hospital to meet with the wounded survivors. They would all eventually return to duty. The agency and the rest of the world would learn of Balawi's treachery after the Taliban began releasing his martyr propaganda videos. Among the dead was a CIA targeting officer named Jennifer Matthews. She had been one of the original analysts assigned to Alex Station when it was launched more than a decade earlier. Like the FBI's John O'Neill, she was one of the few Americans aware of the threat of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda very early on. And like O'Neill, she too had fallen victim to an Al-Qaeda attack. Diana Balsinger was a close friend of Jennifer Matthews.
3: She was passionate. She was absolutely passionate. She was... Funny. She loved her kids. She would, she was a devout Christian. She uh would sometimes come out, shock the heck out of you with singing a Veggie Tales tune, because she spent a lot of time watching Veggie Tales with her uh kids. 9-11 had a terrible impact on her emotionally. She had been driven before, working massive overtime after that. She had, she had a mission in life.
0: Looking back on the attack and the handling of Balawi, in retrospect, it is easy to say mistakes were made. Here's Joby Warwick. This may be oversimplifying it, but was it a case of just too good to be true?
4: In hindsight, and the, the, the code situation, it certainly was. Um, that you know, we have to think back to that time and and this this was a moment when we are pretty desperate in our search for, for bin Laden. The the trail had gone completely cold, a new administration had come in and they tried to put pressure on, on the CIA to, to, you know, to re-energize the search for for Al-Qaeda or for bin Laden for any Al-Qaeda leaders. And and so when information shows up in the form of this young source who for you know for all we know and you know is 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 on our side and is doing good things there was a lot of excitement and some of the the red flags and warnings and precautions that did materialize along the way it was really easy to ignore that in hindsight it was too good to be true because this person who looked looked to be this great breakthrough was not that. He was someone who was, um, you know, looking to kill Americans. Not where
0: dead. did the system fail in the whole sequence of events leading up to COAST?
4: Hmm. There were a couple of places where there were real breakdowns, but the, the one that you know, stands out in hindsight and and people understood it right away was our, our credulousness, believing, you know, th- this that this this amazing spy was really as good as he seemed, and not really taking the time to be skeptical and, and and to to have the kinds of precautions and prudence that you'd normally want to have in any operation like that. And there were, as as I mentioned, there were red flags, there were warnings. The Jordanians became very suspicious and worried that this guy, Balawi, was not what he claimed to be. Um, some of the handlers, the American CIA officers who were, Kind of battle hardened, had been you know down this road before. They were raising uh, warnings and, and red flags and suggesting that you know we need to be really really careful with this. But the CIA ultimately felt that that there was a greater good in bringing this guy in and, and trying to vet him in person and and figuring out what he was all about. And so they really did um, disregard some of the routine cautions and 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 safeguards they should have put into place. And that was the biggest failure. I think was was just. Being too credulous, not thinking through um, the potential traps uh, and pitfalls, and then essentially walking into a trap that became a fatal one for seven Americans.
0: Within a few months after the coast attack, the agency discovered its most promising lead on Osama bin Laden in years. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website ZeroHourPod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at how the U.S. intelligence community discovered the Abbottabad compound and the lengths they went to discover who was living there, culminating with Operation Neptune Spear. I'm David
4: DeSola. Thank you for listening.